get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Get ready for winter driving at Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers with super deals on tires, including up to $200 on new Goodyear tires, plus oil changes, brakes, batteries, and more. For value and savings, click on gotodobbs.com today. Time out for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. And a grounder hit to third. Montero threw it away. O'Neill on his way to second base. And he'll stop there. Tyler O'Neill's going to have to step up and take some big at-bats for us and, and drive in some runs and get on base in order for this offense to be what it needs to be. So we got to count on him. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. That was a fun win last night. It was a weird win, weird game overall. Alex, Tanner, and I got to the ballpark yesterday. I hope Katie is okay with us saying this. Katie, as it's like batting practice time. She comes up to me and Tanner says, I've got weird vibes today. So what do you mean? I don't need that in my life. It's, we're at the ballpark. We're having a good time. Find it is something weird about the fact she walked up to BK and said that. It well, it was me and Tanner. Just to be, just to be clear, she was looking at him. She was though. looking at well, BK. Okay. <laughs> the only person you get weird vibes from is BK. Fair, tough but fair. And I look at her. I'm say, Katie, I don't need that in my life tonight. Need to be here until midnight. We're just here for a good time. It's beautiful weather. A perfect night at the ballpark for some baseball. She said, I've, I've just got some weird vibes, and so. It starts out with Quintana going five, no hit innings. I tell Tanner, look at what Quintana's doing. After the first. We'll talk about that coming up here in about 10 minutes. We'll take yeah, place next. I got next. a bone to pick with you on that. And then in the ninth inning, bottom of the ninth, Cardinals walk, walk, bunt single. <laughs> oh, bunt, yeah. And then a hit-by-pitch walk-off. First time that the Cardinals have done that since 2016. Weird game at the ballpark. I want to start, though, with the guy that I think his game's going to go a little lost in the shuffle because the headliner from it was him getting hit at the end for the quote-unquote walk-off win. Is that considered on base? It, it works. Yeah, hey, I don't care how I he does it about. at this point. Tyler O'Neill looked pretty good last night. If you look at the batted ball numbers for him, his first hit was 102 miles per hour. His second hit was 104 miles per hour. The first one went to the warning track, and I looked this up last night. About 40% of the time, it would have been a home run. Unfortunately, he plays at Bush Stadium. He's a right-handed hitter. Didn't go out of the ballpark. I was told that that ballpark can't contain Tyler O'Neill. Well, I was wrong. On his infield <laughs> single, he got down the line at 30.7 feet per second. Yeah, I saw. I heard uh, Jim Edmonds talking about that on the broadcast, and 
he was fascinated by that. That's 21 miles per hour. Like that is cheetah. really, really fast. He was flying down the line. That's what Michael Scott thought when he was trying to beat the, the uh, speedometer. Guys, is Tyler O'Neill starting to turn it around offensively? I feel like he is. The at-bats, despite some of the strikeouts, look better. He is hitting the ball really hard, and I know some people get irritated with that, but what I was thinking, like, is he doing the same things he was doing last year just without the results? Yes. And what I mean, so so he is, because you're my you're my analytics guru, my information guru. But like I feel like he was doing the same thing last year. The problem was they were a lot of home runs, but he is he is hitting missiles into the outfield right now. Yeah, the spray chart looks good. He's hitting all fields, which is what you want to see from Tyler O'Neill. He has that capability. Last night, I thought that was the most encouraging sign is that that near home run, the fly ball that got to the warning track. I think it was 367 feet. Um, that was to right field. That's what you want to see from him. You want to see him going to all different directions. And if you look at the batted ball numbers, I know people, again, the expected numbers, Alex's favorite thing in the world since he's come back from the injured list, his expected batting average is 265. That's really good. That's what you want to see from Tyler O'Neill. His expected slugging percentage is 500. Again, that's right around the range that you want to see from O'Neill. His exit velocity, 93 miles per hour, which is the exact same as it was last year. And then if you look at the like overall, what should you expect from him in terms of the batted ball numbers? It's significantly above league average. So he has been close to, not repeating, but close to the hitter that he was last year since his return from the injured list and the strikeout rates a little bit below what it was and, at this point last year. And that at bat last night in the bottom of the ninth that he got hit by. I, I like the fact that he's not swinging and chasing some of those pitches. I mean, he worked that count because I believe at one point it was two Oh, and then it got to two, two and then he forced the full count and then got hit like that at least is improvements from a guy who's going up there and striking out with a one, two count. So yeah, I, I feel like he's making strides and as we talked about the weekend against the Brewers where he had the big moment, just like Dylan Carlson, you carry that up with a two for three night last night and getting that game winning at bat. You got to imagine the confidence is going forward. And for that, that hopefully the results are going to follow. Yeah, I think he's making strides. And like like BK was saying, those numbers seem to signal that he's doing basically everything he did last year. I mean, how many times have we said, well, you can tell he's getting close because he's hitting the ball with authority the other way. You saw it last night, that fly ball out to deep right field. Yeah. Promise, I'm just not seeing the results. So it's hard for me to say, yeah, O'Neill's getting close to this breakout because I've said that multiple times. Yeah. Now, the hope is that he doesn't get injured, then it actually comes through because I thought he was close to breaking out in that Boston series. And then he went limp into second base when I think is when he pulled his hamstring, if I remember correctly. So is he close? I think he's close. I, I just hope that he's actually able to break through because I felt like I've said he's close a lot this year. And then he just goes back to himself or not to himself, but goes back to where he's struggling and he starts chasing pitches and he starts striking out a lot. I, I hope this is actually the moment where we see him take off. I hope we can see him take off because if he takes off now, then yeah, this team is going to go to the postseason and they're going to be playing really well and they're going to have the shot to legitimately go on a run because the only piece I think they're missing is that Tyler O'Neill piece. And if he gets going, this team has a legitimate shot to make a run at the World Series. 65780 is your comfort service text line if you guys want to get involved in the show today from the 402. Guys, Tyler O'Neill's issue in 2022 has been the fact that he's hitting the ball on the ground about 40, uh, 41% of the time. There's some truth to that. He's a guy that you, you want him to get the ball in the air. But if you're looking at his launch angle on the season, it's significantly down from where it was a year ago. And that's still the case, even in this particular stretch that I'm talking about. 
I think that's the biggest thing that he needs to get back to is hitting the ball in the air more often. And really for him, it's it's the line drives. You want to get a, as, as many line drives as possible. Ground ball rate, whenever he's on the ground, typically it's the weaker contacts going to the pole side. And that's when he gets himself into some trouble. Last night, he was able to beat one of those out to first base. And that is where he did have some success again last year. So it's starting to look closer to what you want it to be. And to your point, Tanner, this team cannot be the team that it wants to be without him. And I asked Tyler O'Neill last night, like, listen, we've got all this batted ball data, but you can feel it. And Mark McGuire has talked about this with the morning show. And Tyler O'Neill has repeated something similar for him. Hitting is about the feel. Are you getting closer to the feel that you want to have at the plate, Tyler O'Neill? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm up there to hit the ball hard. You know, it's just a style hitter I am for sure. I was trying to stay in the strike zone, hit the ball hard, um, take care of the little things that way, uh, stay within myself. Um, you know, luck, luck's going to turn around eventually. That's why baseball's uh, 160 games. Uh, you know, there's down stretches and there's good stretches, and uh, it's just about exploiting those good stretches as best you can, um, trying, to, trying to fight my way out of couple down stretches this year that have unfortunately happened but you know staying positive and trying to stay mentally tough in there and uh most important baseball is uh, the next day next game coming up so that's that's what i'm always focused on and that's a big question is he going to be in the lineup consistently against the right-handed pitching it's one thing for him to do it against lefties we've seen that before though alex we've seen him have some success even this year when he's had a down season against left-handed pitching Ollie Marmel, are you going to continue giving opportunities to both Tyler O'Neill, who we're talking about here, but also Dylan Carlson, who had a decent game last night? Are they going to continue seeing opportunities against righties? Tyler O'Neill uh, stepping up offensively is going to allow us to be the team that we need to be because he is a good defender. He's done a really nice job out there in left field, and his ability to contribute offensively and produce similar to what he did last year is going to be uh, an important part of our offense. Alex, talking to Ollie yesterday before the game, they're going with your formula. This team is not going away from O'Neill and Carlson. Those guys, they view it as being pretty simple. We are going to win or lose based on, and this is the regular season and of the playoffs, based on how well those guys are able to play. Yeah. They know they can count on Goldie. They can count on Arenado. They know at this point what they're going to get on a night-to-night basis out of Yachty and Pujols, and more often than not, Edmund and DeYoung. They kind of know what those players are. The ceiling for this team will be determined by what they are able to get down the stretch from Carlson and O'Neill. And that for them means that those guys are going to be playing, if not every day, pretty damn close to it. And they've just got to fight through this thing and find a way to start hitting before they get into the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, your big guys need to be your big guys. You're not going to shy away from these guys because there's, you know, a band that's much hotter with somebody who's got less experience because of the defense. And I mean, look, the Cardinals have... The Cardinals have changed my opinion just in terms of how they go about the day-to-day business because Ollie's not the the typical manager that we've seen in the past who is going to go off of the numbers at all times. He's, he's going to go with players who are performing. We've seen that this season. But at the end of the day, regardless if they're performing lesser than the Brennan Donovans and, and the Lars Newtbars and things like that, you got to have the you got to have the big time players that can play defense, especially in the outfield for how this team plays and pitches. And that's where Tyler O'Neill and Dylan Carlson come into play. And again, T-Bone and I, we, we mentioned this yesterday. I'm fine. If they get to the point where they say, you know what? Tyler's just not giving it to us. We put somebody in left field, but you can't go away from both of those guys. 
but I'm glad at least they're giving it to both of those opportunities because you saw the benefits of that last night between Carlson and O'Neal at the top of the order. And I think if you move away from O'Neal, I think you kind of cap your offense. Like, I think there's still a ceiling. I don't think the offense has reached its full potential yet because Tyler O'Neal hasn't gotten going. And kind of the same with Dylan Carlson. Dylan Carlson gets going. He's either the ideal number two or the leadoff hitter. Like, either or. I mean, he's the perfect guy for that. And if O'Neal's going, he's the guy that's going to clean up behind uh, Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado. So, yeah, I like the idea of sticking with these guys. I do think by the time you get to September, you have to have your best lineup out there. And if that means you have to look to turn away from Tyler O'Neill, then I get it. But I think you have to continue to ride him and see if he can get some luck to bounce his way. And then he can take off because it's no coincidence that the 17 game streak last year occurred while Tyler O'Neill was playing at an MVP level alongside Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado. So they have to stick with him. And and I agree, you can't really lose much defense because I think that is their identity still. Pitching and defense is still their identity. And then the offense is kind of the nice piece if you can get it from Tyler O'Neill to add to the mix of the, of your MVPs. They're doing it with Paul DeYoung, at least since they've recalled him. They just keep putting him out there, and he has good games, he has bad games, but they keep going to him. And if you're going to do that with Paul DeYoung, you absolutely have to do that with Tyler O'Neill. Yeah, and Paul DeYoung, by the way, is going through a slump of his own. I mm-hmm. think he's like two for his last 18 with nine strikeouts in that stretch. But they just keep going. And they should. He's your guy, right? Like at some point you just have to decide, okay, who are our dudes? Who are we going to be counting on down the stretch? And I think at this point they have made it abundantly clear. We are going to be betting on Tyler O'Neill and Dylan Carlson to be a significant piece of what we're trying to accomplish here down the stretch. By the way, for what it's worth, there's what, 50, 50 games left in the season, basically somewhere around there. Last year, if you look at Atlanta, And I'm not making the one-for-one comparison, but two of the guys that they counted on in a big, big way down the stretch were Eddie Rosario and Jorge Soler. If you look at Eddie Rosario's numbers before the trade, when they acquired him, he's batting 250. That's not bad, but a 295 on base percentage and an OPS plus that was 13% below league average. Eddie Rosario was not having a good season offensively when the Braves got him. And then final 33 games of the season with the Braves, hit 271, had a 900 OPS, and then was awesome for them into the playoffs. Jorge Soler, similar story. At the time that they acquired him, he was striking out one out of every three at-bats for the Royals. He was terrible for them. He was batting 192 on the season and was 22% below league average offensively. You look at what he did for Atlanta down the stretch. 360 on base percentage, slugged 525, was 30% above league average, and he did so in his last 50 games of the year in a Braves uniform. That's what they're hoping that you can get down the stretch from Dylan Carlson and Tyler O'Neill. This is a new stretch for them. This is a fresh start. Can you, starting on Sunday to where we are today, can you guys take this thing and run with it? If they can, the Cardinals are going to be a team to be reckoned with down the stretch. If they can't, then it's probably a sign that the Cardinals were never going to be that team in the end. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. If you guys want to get involved in the show, the Air Comfort Service text line is 65780. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, there was a stat on Robert Thomas that came out earlier today that legitimately took my breath away. We'll do that coming up in 15 minutes. But next, are Jose Quintana and Jordan Montgomery battling for a playoff spot in the Cardinals rotation, or could they both Get into the Cardinals rotation. Also, I BKO'd Jose Quintana last night. I'm going to apologize next year on 101 ESPN. You know, I'm just trying to be ready for a good one to whack. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. So we got to talk about Jose Quintana. Love it was an impressive guy. five innings. Yeah. No hits. Do we need to talk about Jose Quintana or do we need to talk about As somebody in this room? Somebody said on Twitter yesterday, the three worst thing, three worst letters you can hear in sports radio. I, the BKO. First of all, explain yourself because I have a problem with you. Okay. That's nothing new, but I will explain myself in this specific scenario. Okay. So last night, again, me and Tanner down to the ballpark watching the game from the press box. It was a beautiful night. We had the the glass was down in we, front we of us. It. You it love was, baseball. Let's move. It was really a fantastic <laughs> evening at Bush Stadium in every possible way. My hair. Did you get a hot dog, T-Bone? Uh, no, no we went to the, the, the carving station again. It was delicious. Did you buy his dinner? I did. I, 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 I bought, bought my, my, my guy I drove. some dinner. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, he drove. I bought. It was a great, oh, great BK situation. Find things left and right. So... We're through five innings. Cardinals are cruising. Everything's looking good. Paul Goldschmidt has hit one of the most towering home runs that I've seen this year. Um, Jose Quintana, no hits allowed through five. He's, he's looking excellent. The curveball's playing once again. And I just look over to Tanner. I say, are you seeing what, what Jose Quintana's doing right now? He says, don't even say it. I said, okay, I won't. So I'm tweeting it out. <laughs> so instead, hold on, repeat what you just said there. He said, don't even say it. I said, okay, I won't. So what so I do is social media. I, I take a screen cap of Jose screen. Quintana's numbers, and it's it's five innings next to the, the there's a there's an H on here, and underneath that there's the zero. And there's zero earned runs, zero home runs. Read him what your tweet walks, said, BK. Ks, and 67 pitches, he's thrown 44 strikes. Read him really what good. your tweet said, BK. Said, I'm just going to leave this here. Okay. Because T-Bone said that I'm not giving any, or I'm not allowed to give any analysis for the sake of a potential BKO. Okay, and then what happened? You want me to play the, the tape? Sure. This is what happened. 9-1-2 and two facing Jose Quintana, who's not given up a hit yet. Redirected. This will be the second hit for Bernard in his uh, career. So a leadoff hit, and that is numero uno for the Rockies tonight. In this ground ball, base hit to right field. Here's Charlie Black. Here's a pitch to Charlie, and he'll swing and bounce it up the middle. That's into center field. It's a base hit. That was only two of them, and then there were two more. First and of all, got pulled. First of all, I have a question. How dare you? Second of all, when T Bone tells you not to bring it up. And then you tweet out the picture and say, I'm not supposed to talk about this. I thought we were getting around the BKO. I thought I thought I was avoiding it. That's literally acknowledging the no hit. Just not verbally. I, I, didn't, say it. I didn't say anything. I said, I'm, I'm just going to leave this here. You are acknowledging the no hit. I was posting no a photo that no. I enjoyed. No. It seemed like <laughs> a good picture. No. I, posting I mean, a photo you, you know enjoy say is Tyler O'Neill going back to back with the boys. Six sallies with the boys. This is essentially the same as if you would have taken a selfie from the press box yes. and had it where your finger was pointing at the zero <laughs> yes. on the scoreboard that had a zero on the eight. Why didn't you tell me to this do is you acknowledging it? I don't you to acknowledge it at all. This is you acknowledging it. Let me ask you Can another question. Can we listen back to, though, I, I I actually think we should be blaming somebody else. Can we listen back to the beginning of this? It's just like the first five seconds or so. I, I actually think I've got a new person that we can blame. Nine, one, and two facing Jose Quintana, who's not given up a hit yet. It's on him! That, He's the guy that, that, Hold on. Isn't that their broadcaster? <laughs> yeah. no. It's Drew Goodman. No, no you Drew said bleeping Goodman tweeted it before he said it. And BK said to me, I'm pretty sure it was after the top of the first, he goes, hey, look at the scoreboard. I'm it was the third. At- it was the third. Oh, and sorry. guess what happened after that? Uh, Two more no-hit innings. Can I ask you a question? What were you doing this weekend when Adam Wainwright was pitching? 
I was at a bar and I told Kara. Were you watching it? I, you want me to be totally honest yes. with you? <laughs> yes. So Cooper's Hawk just opened in uh, the St. Charles area. So Kara said, do you, do you want to go out there? Thanks it's, for the invite, by the way. <laughs> you have 17 children at home. Um, Kara said, do you want, do you want to go out there? We'll go out cool. on a quick date night. I said, absolutely. That sounds great. So we went out there and we were sitting at the bar because, shocker, you needed reservations to get into the reservation at 7 o'clock on a Saturday after they had just opened. So we're sitting at the bar and they have the game on uh, up on the TV. So we're watching, and I'm like, damn it, it seems like Wayno's having a really good night. Oh, God. And so I look down at my phone, and it it shows that he's got a no-hit bid going. And I look, over at, at it. I look over at Kara, I say, oh my God, Adam Wainwright's going for a no-hitter. I Boom. am not kidding. As I say, Adam Wainwright is going for a no-hitter. Literally, that was the moment that he gave up his first hit. It was like as as the words are coming out of my mouth, boom, ball in play. Pardon my French, but you're a jerk. <laughs> That's what you are. You have ruined two no-hitters. Honestly, you ruined the Miles Michaelis one, too. The worst too. part about it, too, was even after the third inning, I, I had no... No incline last night that Quintana was <laughs> yeah. at zero in the hit category until BK goes, Hey, look at the scoreboard. I'm like looking at the scoreboard, like, what am I He's supposed like, to what? be seeing? New bars up goes, the plate. There's, there's numbers on the scoreboard that are the same, and I'm like looking around, I'm like, Well, batting average looks different than on base. And then I see the zero, I go, Dude, it's the third <laughs> inning. What are that's, you doing? That's the equivalent of a guy's first hit being a home run, and then you looking over and saying, Oh, he's a single, double, and triple away from the cycle. That's true. No. Give it a little bit, man. Well, it, it really, you only do that if they get the triple first. You BKO'd Miles Michaelis' no-hitter, so you've BKO'd three no-hitters this season. So I, I do want to say, I think I sometimes underestimate my own powers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't you remember with Uncle Ben and Spider-Man? Great responsibility. Yeah. I don't think I understand my responsibility uh, with this yet. Start having some like resistance and once honestly, in a while, man. So it it, it kind of has a mind of its own sometimes where I can't even do. control it. They hey, usually he do. My, like, he broke my car. And, like, I don't even yeah, yeah, I didn't control I, that. I didn't even know it went beyond sports. Like, well, I, you didn't when you shut down it, the entire in, airport? In the last calendar year, I've I've ruined Tanner's car. Gave cost him, him thousands of dollars that he doesn't have. If we could start a GoFundMe, that'd be great for a producer. Yeah. Um, Needs a date too. And I, I yeah. ruined an airline, Southwest Airlines. Their entire airlines was was brought down by the fact that I was flying on their, their airline. Um, it's, it's not great. Somebody Just, said, I'm going to need a whereabouts about where you were during the ninth inning of Waka's opportunity. He was a Royals fan at that time, so... Okay, let's not bring that into the conversation. Well, he still is a Royals fan. That's why you're doing this, isn't it? No. Personally and professionally, it is much Trust better for me if there was a no-hitter last time. Trust me, his, his BKO did, doesn't affect the Royals. Did you apologize to Jose Quintana last night? Should have. I didn't. Well, I didn't. And this is why I, the BK... I would, I would like to take this opportunity, though, if you don't mind, Alex. Go for it. To... Do we have a song for this? No, it's okay. We don't need to do anything else. Um, I would like to apologize to all of you, the listeners, for Alex making me talk about this for the first seven minutes of this segment. It's been completely unnecessary. We didn't even need to acknowledge it. Oh, no, we did. It's not even my fault. It's Drew Goodman's fault, as we heard moments Some, ago. No, someone said you can't BKO your own no-hitter. Duct tape BK from the 314. Our great buddy, Travis Green. Uh, now we have confirmation that you sent a screenshot of Wayno's seventh inning line that ruined his no-hitter. So, Travis, thank you, you for that. You I are the worst. You might be the worst. Do you want to see um, what happened? Yeah, I'm looking so. at it right now. The text says, the text is says, look at the number under ER. So he, like, he knows that the BKO works, 
but yet he he tries to that beat around impressive. the bush. Wait, but I did it twice in the last <laughs> week. Wait, you even BKO'd his earned runs too? Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. Six three six. So freaking beta. It's not good. It's not good. All right. But uh, anyway, Jose so Quintana. Speaking of the segment that we wanted to do, Jose Quintana and Jordan Montgomery, are they competing right now for a spot in the playoff rotation? Or do you think there is a scenario in which both of them could make the playoff rotation for the Cardinals? If Jordan, they're using four starters. If, let's operate under Jordan Montgomery's not competing for anything. Jordan Montgomery's got that. I think Jose Quintana has it, other unless Jack Flaherty looks like Jack Flaherty when he returns in September. I... The only way Jose Quintana gets the boot from the rotation in the playoffs is if Jack Flaherty is lights out in his final stretch before the playoffs. And if he's not, I can see them just saying, you know what, Jack, you worked really hard. You're going to be a part of this playoff run, but we're going to utilize you out of the bullpen. And then it's Jose Quintana, Jordan Montgomery, Mike, listen, wait, but I don't think Montgomery's competing for anything. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't think Montgomery's competing for anything. I actually think he's, pretty much locked in as the number three for you right now in your playoff rotation. I do think it comes down to Quintana competing against Jack Flaherty. And I think whoever looks better in the final month when Flaherty comes back is going to be the guy that gets that fourth spot in the rotation. And whoever loses, either way, I expect both guys to be on the playoff roster. I expect the other to be in the bullpen. And honestly, the way that if Jack Flaherty's right and he pitches well and if the way Quintana's pitched, I wouldn't be shocked if they're used in kind of high-leverage situations. Like maybe you get through four innings. You need to bridge two innings till you get to the seventh. Yep. Normally, we would say, who Especially would you turn to? Righties. They need yeah. somebody in that spot. Normally, we'd say, who do you turn to? Palante? Okay, maybe not. Maybe I'll go to Jack Flaherty or I'll go to Jose Quintana, depending on who's in that bullpen. Or Steven Matz. Or Steven Matz, because I think there's a possibility Matz is going to be back on the active roster. He may be more in the one-inning role, just based on his timeline for return. But I, I think it's definitely a possibility. You see Quintana work his way into the playoff rotation. I don't think he's competing directly with Montgomery because I think Montgomery has proven just in his first yeah. two starts based on the fact that he's gone 11 innings and hasn't given up an earned run but, yet. But see, he's a guy that's locked it's in. It's insane that we're saying that because I kind of know where you're getting at with this, BK, because I saw the graphic last night going into the game. Jose Quintana, since the since the trade at the trade deadline, has the second-best ERA in baseball. Yeah, I mean, he's been unbelievable. It, it's him, insane. him and Montgomery have both been really good for right. the Cardinals. Montgomery on the mound tonight for the Cardinals, uh, hoping to take game two against the Rockies. I I think there's... So what I find really interesting is I think any of those three could start game three for the Cardinals, and it wouldn't surprise me. Like, if you told me the Cardinals go with Michaelis and Wayno in games one and two of the wild card round, and they have to play a game three, you tell me Flaherty's on the mound for that one? Okay, that makes sense. He looked great, by the way, last night in his rehab stint for double-A. His curveball played very well for him. His velocity was up. At one point, he got it up to 97 miles per hour. That's super encouraging. His command was a little better than it was in the first rehab assignment. He's going to get two more starts before he makes his way back to the big leagues. Flaherty starts. It's cool. I get that. Quintana starts. I can listen to the argument. It makes a lot of sense. You go into that with Montgomery on the mound? Absolutely. That makes sense. That's what I think is so interesting about the Cardinals rotation right now is you have more options than you have potentially spots in the rotation for the playoffs. As of today, who do you think, again, as of today, this could change down the stretch. Who do you think gets that start in game three of the wild card round? In your, if you were the manager today. And let's assume there's not significant splits lefty-righty because that could definitely influence the decision one way or the other. And they're at home. Can we go into that assumption? Or does it matter? Yeah, at home. They won the division. They're going up against the six seed. I think it's Michaelis. I think it sets up like we well, talked. Then, let me clarify. Who's starting the, who is your number three starter in the wild? Uh, okay, card I'm sorry. The, the, the three starters, 
Because you got Wayno, you got Michaelis. Who would be your third? Montgomery. As of right now, it would be Jordan Montgomery. And Jose Quintana would be the high leverage guy, like Tebow mentioned. I think that's a perfect scenario, especially for how these playoffs are going to go with the format. Jose Quintana is the perfect guy to go to before you start that second or third time through, the, probably the third time through the batting order. Yeah, I would turn to Jordan Montgomery. He would be my number three right now. Um, I, I think he's just been, I think Quintana's been awesome, but I mean, you look at Jordan Montgomery, I think he's a guy that it's hard to picture how the Yankees didn't view him as being in their playoff rotation, especially now you look at them and how they've really fallen apart. He looks like a guy that can show up and pitch in big moments. I mean, you saw what he did against uh, Milwaukee over the weekend. He was awesome against Milwaukee. So I, I think Montgomery's the guy. I think you turn to him I mean, against the Yankees and the Brewers, two playoff teams, and he shut them both out. So I think Montgomery's the number three. I think Montgomery's my number three because I think Quintana profiles better out of the bullpen. Like I, yeah. it, it's, I, I think both of them could be really good for you in, in that number three starter spot. And I don't necessarily feel significant one way or the other as if you're going to have a better start out of them. But I do think Quintana with his swing and miss stuff and with the way that that curveball is playing right now, I would love to have that as an option coming out of my pin. And I do think that maybe plays up a little bit more in the bullpen than Montgomery does. And Montgomery, I, I have more trust, can get deeper into the games. Quintana's been mostly a five-inning starter so far this season for both the Cardinals and also the Pirates. So I, I think that's the way I would have them set up as well. We're all on the Montgomery side of things. Coming up in 15 minutes, 65780 is your comfort service X line for questions and answers. But next, Robert Thomas is unlike any other player in the NHL right now. We'll tell you a stat that proves it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Robert Thomas is unlike any other player in the NHL. We already knew that his passing ability is special. But earlier today, Alex sent me something in our morning text messages that we always have with one another. Dude, don't tell him that. And he sent us a tweet from a gentleman. I want to give him his credit. It's at shutdown line. This is basically for people that don't know, kind of the the cohort of Jay Fresh, who we had on our yeah. show. They work together. So it's a graphic, and it's it's one of those plots, Alex, that made me nervous and made me sweat a little bit whenever I was in grade school because you look at it and you're like, oh, boy, there's an x-axis, there's a y-axis. Am I going to understand what the rest of this means? This was geography. So it's five-on-five five high-danger plays. And the nice thing about this graphic is I don't need to understand a whole lot about it to know that, who buddy, Robert Thomas is, like, way better at this than everybody else in the NHL. So the way that this works is – if you're looking at the high danger assist per 60 minutes, Robert Thomas is like off of the grid compared to everybody else. And then there's like a bunch of blank space. And then the rest of the NHL is all clustered together. Alex, the reason I bring this up is because it's just yet another reminder of what kind of player we're watching in Robert Thomas. And the other thing that stood out to me about this graphic is it's not just Robert Thomas that stands out above everybody else in the NHL. It's also that if you're looking at the shots of high danger passes per 60 minutes, Vladimir Tarasenko is at the very top of that with the same gap as Robert Thomas has in terms of the assists. Vladimir Tarasenko is at the top of the shots. And those two things are correlated. And this is why going into the season, I'm really curious to see who that right winger is with Robert Thomas, because in some ways, Last year, we talked about, okay, 
is it Pavel Buchnevich that's making his line better than what they should be because of the way that he plays? And there, I think there's some truth to that. Pavel Buchnevich had an incredible season. I also think Robert Thomas, when he is with a legitimate goal scorer, and you need that on that line. We talked about that all year as well. He has the potential to maximize what the potential output is for that goal scorer. So if you put Jordan Cairo with him for the entirety of the season, I think you will get the best possible version of Jordan Cairo next year. That might be a 40 goal scorer. Like, I know that sounds crazy right now to think about, but it's possible. If you put Pavel Buchnevich for the entire season mm-hmm. on that line with Robert Thomas, Pavel Buchnevich could score next year 35 goals. Same thing for Vladimir Tarasenko. You could have a career year next year for Vladdy. Whoever that full-time guy is, I think they're about to have the best season of their career you because could, of Robert Thomas. You could have 50 goals from Vladdy next year in all reality. If if he stays healthy, if Thomas stays healthy, and they stay on the line together on a consistent basis because of this. And, and to give people a little bit of, of an idea... The only player closer to Vladimir Tarasenko in terms of the, the high-danger shot passes per 60 was Mika Zabinijad from the New York Rangers. And the three closest players to Robert Thomas on the high-danger assist side, and again, this is like two two spots lower than where Robert Thomas is. It was um, Trevor Zegras from Anaheim. It was Mitch Marner from Toronto and Connor McDavid from the Edmonton Oilers. Those are some pretty good names to be in the conversations with if you're talking about Robert Thomas. So you're right. As much as we talk about the depletion of David Perron on the offense for this team and how much of a blow that truly is, I do wonder if the front office looked at the decision to move past David Perron to, look, yes, the salary cap purposes have impacted this a lot, but we also have such a high-danger weapon on the offensive side right now that we believe he can create offense for guys and make them more goal scorers than what they originally were. And if you look at it, they have the depth in terms of experience and talent on the wings. You go on the left-wing side. If we're going to consider Pavel Buchnevich as a left-winger, which I sent you guys another graphic from Travis Yost of TSN, which we're going to talk about, their tiers the left wing side for the Blues was a top tier core group of Pavel Buchnevich, Brandon Saad. They had Ivan Barbashev and Nathan Walker in this conversation. In all reality, you're talking about Alexei Torpchenko in this conversation also. On the right wing side, that was a third tier group, which is still a pretty significant tier. And that one had Tarasenko, it had Kairu. Um, I believe they had Jake Neighbors in that one, and I think they had Clem Costin in that one, which is just a strange thing in itself. But what, but what I'm saying is you have the guys who can score all of these goals for you, but you have not had the elite playmakers in the past. Now you have two of them in Ryan O'Reilly and Robert Thomas. Yeah, what the Blues have is just it's different than what they've had in the past of lethal scoring options. Yeah, like. Even Brandon saw it. I, I know that last year we kind of made fun of the, the shooting versus the he passing. Pass. And how he doesn't have and then he got uh, all the assist the numbers. And then down the stretch, they ended up, he literally had the exact same season that Brandon Saad always has. He's a really good scorer. He's like, you can write in stone right now. He's going to have 20 to 25 goals this year. Absolutely. Because that's what Brandon Saad always does. And then really, it's just a matter of, okay, you lose a guy who last year you could depend on for something similar. 25 plus goals with... David Perron, how do you make up for that? And I think a big part of what they're going to try to do is Robert Thomas is going to create that. He's going to create that production for whoever that right winger and left winger is on his line. It's kind of like in the NFL, Alex, this year, like 
you look at the way that the Green Bay Packers or the Kansas City Chiefs are building, they believe in their quarterbacks to maximize the output of their wide receivers as opposed to vice versa. Meanwhile, you look at teams like the Dolphins or the Eagles, and they know, hey, we've got these rookie quarterbacks that we're not totally sure about. We need to maximize their output by putting as many playmakers around them as possible. The Blues are betting on their centers. They're betting on Ryan O'Reilly to make his line mates better. They're betting on Robert Thomas to make his line mates better. And they're betting on if he ends up having to play there, Braden Shin to make his teammates better on that third line as well. And that's what they're hoping ends up being able to uh, get them out of this next year. I think that I think they're betting, like you said, on, on two guys that really stick out to me that they're betting a lot from. One is Brandon Saad. I think we might undervalue what Brandon Saad brings because it's not just the goal scoring ability. He is a two way player. He was on the penalty kill. He had a lot of shorthanded goals, just like Pavel Buchnevich did. And he's a power play guy who goes to the front of the net. He was off of the power play for a bit last year because they had so many mouths to feed and not enough spots for them. Brandon Saad could be on your number one power play this season, which is going to up that goal potential. And Braden Shan basically played half of this season with broken ribs and he still scored. What was it? Almost 20 goals. Mm-hmm or over 20 goals. Uh, Braden Shannon is best his first year with the blues scored 28 goals. Like this is a guy who could score 25 to 30 goals for you if he's healthy. So I, I do think that they're viewing this as Robert Thomas is the elite playmaker that we feel like we haven't had. Jordan Cairo is about to break out, but we also have two guys that are undervalued in what we believe their true potential truly is for this team. Coming up in 15 minutes, we want to hear from you. The Rhino Shield mic drop features on the 101 ESPN app. I asked Ollie what I thought to be an interesting question yesterday. What have you learned about yourself as a manager so far this season in those high leverage spots? There was a big one that took place on Saturday, but that wasn't the first one that we've seen. Ollie has been super aggressive in those spots to try to win the game when he sees an opportunity to take it from the opponent. It hasn't always worked, but he's going for it in those spots. What does he learn about himself in those situations? What does he hope that Cardinals fans have learned about him in those spots? We'll let you hear his full answer to that coming up at noon. I also want to hear from Cardinals fans, though. What is your confidence level in your first year manager down the stretch and then into the playoffs? Is he an asset? Is he a liability? How do you feel about Ollie? We'll get into that coming up at noon. Questions and answers are coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service Tax Line. We were just talking about this off air. We got a question from the 636. Hey guys, I've been listening to the Rizzuto show the last couple of days, and they've done uh, a remembrance of uh, Jeff Burton. And I was curious if you guys have any thoughts that you'd like to share, or if you've been able to listen to any of the memorial shows that they've done the last couple of days. Alex, I know that you've um, been listening to basically the entirety of their shows the last couple of days. And I know you and Jeff were able to do a lot, especially on the blue stuff together. Yeah, I, I got the opportunity just to listen both days driving into work. And first of all, they've done a phenomenal job with that. Not 
not sitting there dwelling on the past or the fact that he has passed, but thinking of all the positive memories and so many great stories and audio clips, uh, which is just fantastic. And it's just such a tough time for everybody. But yeah, I mean, everyone's got stories with Jeff. I mean, I, I before I came over here in 2019 to Hubbard, I was just a fan of the Riz show. And I've met Jeff a couple of times at Blues games because he is always up in the press box. Talked to him a couple of times. And then I once got over here, you know, I wanted him to be a part of the Blues broadcast in ways. And so first couple of years, we did Blue Notes where we just recorded things. And Jeff had so much fun with it. And then I had him and Donnie sitting on a couple of Blues broadcasts pre and post with me. And uh, it was an awesome experience to get to do that with Donnie and Jeff. And, of course, just a huge Blues fan. And, again, like everyone has said, the guy is just He's one of the nicest human beings you'll ever meet. Always has something positive to say. Always has something funny to say. But he's always so caring in terms of, for me, he would ask how my wife was doing, how our baby daughter was doing, and then he would slide in a joke that says, are you sure the ba- the daughter is yours? So, like, that was Jeff Burton. But uh, I was honored to get to do Blues broadcasts with him a couple of times, and I know Donnie said that it meant so much to Jeff to be able to get to do that also. The funniest thing about Jeff is, like, he would say something, and then he would leave the room, and then you'd realize that he just knifed you. Oh, yeah. Like you, it, he's so freaking quick with everything. Yep. And that's what stood out to me is, like, it's just... If you did like funny to number of words spoken ratio, oh, he's got to he be on the. Day. He is the Albert Pujols of yeah. of of that and every day. It it was amazing, and I I was listening earlier today. Uh, Learn was on with the Rizzuto show, and she was talking about how Burton was such a huge fan of Casey, and of course he's listening to everything on the point as well. And then he would send us texts during our yep. show, and I know he did the same thing with the morning show, afternoon show as well. Uh, I know Tim has a very good relationship with those guys, and it, it's wild, man. Like I feel like I listen to a lot of stuff, and I try to like be on top of it. Jeff listen, Jeff just freaking yeah. loved radio, but mm-hmm. more specifically, he loved St. Louis radio, yeah. and that's he's just. It's been a fixture on these airwaves like I, 25 I like years we've been doing this for a while we've been doing this for like three years together jeff was on the radio as long as i've been alive yep. jeff has jeff has been on the radio literally <laughs> longer, longer than, tanner. than tanner has been alive i think he told you that once that he could be your father yeah he said that to me one day like <laughs> casually walking down the hallway guys yeah. do you know how hard that is in yep. this industry to have that kind of a career mm-hmm. and for everybody in this industry to like you after you've had that long of a career. <laughs> yeah. Like that's the harder part. Dude, that's impossible. Yeah. To be universally loved doing what we do and to do it for more than two decades and to have a wide range of audience oh. love you like Learn said it so perfectly with Casey. He he matched so many demographics. He was a huge sports fan of the Cardinals and Blues. So sports fans loved him. He was a huge music fan, but he was also an entertainer. Like he covered so many different demographics that it just worked so well. And uh, real quick, fun story. I was going through audio of Jeff because I wanted to pass over some stuff that he did on blues broadcast to the Riz guys if they needed it. And I pulled up the clip of he and Donnie when they were on with me, we were talking trade deadline and I had a whole thing planned out trade deadline, five guys. I was going to talk and get their best opinions on who they were traded to. And all of those guys were traded before we did the segment. And so Jeff, as great as he is at what he does, I brought that up and Jeff's like, well, when you said trade thoughts, he's like, I thought of Halle Berry immediately. And then he went into a whole spiel of how he would trade everything for Halle Berry. He would give her a no trade clause and a full (laughs) movement clause. And Donnie and I lost it. But like, that's what he was so good at. He was so good at making people laugh. 
And he was so good at, at, at vamping when he had to. And he made you feel like you were important. Yeah. And that's a real skill. Like, I'm terrible at this. I, I make everybody feel smaller than they are. Um, well, that's true. And Jeff Burton made you feel like you were the greatest at whatever you were doing at that particular point in time. Like, when I, I've seen him out at uh, events, mm-hmm. and he will be the one that asks others to take pictures with him as opposed to them. Because it's such an awkward thing, right? You've met people where you're like, hey, can I get a picture with you? Yeah. And it's just an awkward situation. And so he made it, he, he did the opposite. He just kind of brought it out into the open. He's like, hey, can I can I get a picture with you, the, the fan? And that's a really cool thing, what he's able to do to just make people feel comfortable at all times. And then he did the same thing for us, right? When we first got our opportunity on yep. the radio, Jeff would tell us, hey, you guys are doing great. Like, sound, show sounds Love awesome. Listening to you Love guys, listening yeah. to you guys. He does the same thing I know with the other shows on this station. He's, he's just super comforting like anytime you talked to him you felt happy Mm -hmm. and there's there's something about the warmth that he brought into every room he just makes you want to be a better person like that's what i've that's what i've kind of established over these last few days listening to just stories of jeff is he makes you want to be a better person and i know at this business for some reason we seem like we're not as approachable as what we should be and jeff was that person where people were afraid to approach him and he would make you feel like what do you come talk to me please Like it makes you want to be a better person in that aspect of life. And so that's the biggest thing I've taken away after Jeff's passing. It's absolute best. Uh, if you haven't heard any of the, the stuff they're doing, they, yeah. they've got it all podcasted. It's And I believe they're doing a last really cool. minute blues podcast tonight, Donnie and Jamie. So they're going to be emotional, I'm sure. But uh, must listen also. Uh, check all of that out. It's all worth your time. Jeff Burton is the absolute greatest yeah. and legitimately the funniest person I've ever met. Uh, coming up in 15 minutes, uh, we'll talk about Jacob Chikrin. It sounds like he's still potentially on the move before the start of the NHL season. Do the Blues have what it takes to get a deal done there? And do they want to get a deal done for Jacob Chikrin? We'll get into that at 1215, but coming up next, what is your level of confidence in Ali Marmel going into the stretch run? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You know, I really appreciate Ollie saying that. I really feel like I can definitely impact this ball club in a positive way um you know i feel like that's that's definitely my job i showed that last year i definitely revealed the player that i am and that is the player that i am so it's unfortunate this year i haven't been able to fall into that rhythm that i was able to get into last year and you know i'm, I'm just really focused on staying healthy and uh just, just being able to to repeat in the batter's box just do what i do um find a good spot for myself and uh you know feel good in there right now so we'll see what happens that was Tyler O'Neill yesterday when asked about Ollie Marmel continuing to say repeatedly. He said this all year long. I remember when we went to a game early in the season. This is like month two. Uh, Ollie Marmel said, hey, we're going to need Tyler O'Neill to be the best version of her himself for us to do the things that we think we can do. And then he repeated that same sentiment yesterday as we are now getting into the final six weeks of the season out of the ballpark again with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks. And I'm Brandon Kylie. I think Ollie, one of the things that stands out to me is his honesty. And that's with the media. It's with his team. It's with fans. He is honest. Sometimes even you could say to a fault. I I personally prefer this approach. I would rather have somebody be upfront and honest with me about what I am or I'm not doing well. 
And that's that's always the case. Allow me the opportunity to get better at the things that I'm struggling at. And if you are somebody that plays for Ollie's team, you're going to know where you stand with him. Dakota Hudson, you got to work quicker. Uh, Tyler O'Neill, we need better at-bats from you. If you're Corey Dickerson over the weekend, you know that he wanted you to take a better route to that ball. And sometimes the players know that just intrinsically. Corey Dickerson knows that he messed up on that play. And sometimes they don't. I don't know that Dakota knows sometimes that he is working very slow. Really? But Ollie will tell you where you, where you're at with him, and he will be honest. I also think, though, that it is important, if you're going to have that, that you also, like the, the critical side of things, that you also are honest about you sticking with them. If you say all year long that you're going to stick with Tyler O'Neill and you need that guy to be somebody that is performing at a high level for this team to reach its goals, then you got to actually stick with him. And so I do think he deserves a little bit of credit for that side of things as well. And him being critical of himself after the games, I think, is also a big part of that. So I appreciate and I think it's refreshing that Ollie is as honest as he is. But yesterday I asked Ollie in a conversation, and I want to hear from the audience as well. What is your level of confidence in the Cardinals' first-year manager? I asked him what he's learned about himself as a manager, especially in those high-pressure situations like what we saw on Saturday where you're going for broke and you've got an opportunity to win or lose the game based on the decision that is made right here. What have you learned about yourself in those moments, and what do you hope that Cardinals fans have learned about you in those spots? Here's what Ollie had to say about that. It's a loaded one, man. It really is because at times you make decisions and then you you sit there at night and you're thinking, man, what would have been if I would have done this or that? And uh, if you're convicted in a decision, um, not that I don't care what other people think, but how am I going to sleep best at night is is how I kind of end it. uh, There's times I've made a decision that probably – make sense to the bigger group and it doesn't work out and you sit there and like man like I was really trusting to do this and I didn't do it so um as far as what fans have learned from me I have have no idea I'm gonna I'm gonna be me um there's gonna be people that love it there's gonna be people that don't and at the end of the day uh I'm focused on leading this group to the championship and uh, I'm gonna do it the way myself and the staff knows how to do it so that's all I got for you I think the biggest thing hearing him talk about that is he's not managing scared. Not at all. And that's what, like, there are people in the game that manage scared because they're worried about what the fans will think, worried about what the front office is going to think, if they can keep their job. Ollie doesn't seem that way to me. Ollie seems like a guy that is like, look, I got this job because they believe in my decisions, and if I do them correctly, we will have success. But the other thing about it, too, is he's not analytically driven. And he is, but hearing him say that right there, like he's going with what he feels is the smart decision. Now he's taking the information in, but he's also thinking of the personal side of this going, okay, but is this the correct route to keep the clubhouse intact, to keep the season intact? Because if he's just going off of, well, the information tells me to do it this way. I don't feel like that's the right way, but the information says that I need to go with it it might blow up in your face and you're going to be hurting for it rather than sitting there and saying, Hey, I backed this up and give the reason why. So those are the first couple of things that come to mind hearing that, but big picture with Ollie, uh, he's Craig Berube on the baseball side. 
Like he, he seems to me exactly how Craig Berube is with the St. Louis blues, where he's upfront with his players. He's not afraid to make a decision. If it's right or wrong, he's going to stick to his guns as to why he went with it. And on top of it, he's not going to just, he's not going to be emotionally attached. And that's an important factor. Last night, Albert Pujols getting that hit on first base with nobody out. And he takes Pujols out, who knows he's going to get one more at bat, and puts Brendan Donovan on the base. Now, turns into a double play, but if you watch Albert Pujols' face, Pujols was ticked off that he was taken out of that game. But Ollie's not managing for Albert Pujols to get one more at bat. Ollie's managing to win the game. Also, Albert was going to get one more at bat against a righty. He was not going to see another lefty in that game. But all of those things, like managers of the past, I don't think we're seeing that situation right there. And that's where I feel like you're getting a different manager right now. TLR would have. TLR wasn't afraid. TLR 20 years ago would have. TLR sure. right now might have been asleep yeah, at that but point. I, I mean the TLR that you, you had wow. here in St. Louis. Well, the fan would have told him to do But it. I I think sometimes we almost do this thing. Like, we, we got one of these from the 573. He's no Whitey Herzog. He's no Tory. He's no TLR. Saturday night was a perfect example. Guys, those those managers made decisions that blew up in their face as well. TLR made a bunch of them. And he would tell you that he, he made a bunch of them. He used to get into screaming matches because of the decisions of who he brought into a game from the bullpen. 100%. And that's part of managing, right? You have to be willing to accept those arrows. Because you, when you make big-time decisions that win or lose you a game, you're the one that has to take those arrows. And honestly, one of the things that I like about both TLR when he was the manager here and now uh, with what you're seeing from Marmol they are not just willing to take them. They embrace it. Mm-hmm. They appreciate the fact that you're questioning some of the things that they are doing. And if you're willing to listen, they will explain to you what their thought process was. Now, you may still disagree with the ultimate decision as to what they got to, the conclusion of the information that they used. But more often than not, it was the case with TLR. It continues to be the case with Ollie, in my mind, at least. When you hear their thought process, it's like, Okay, I understand how you got there, even if I disagree with the conclusion. Last night, Tanner, there was, was one of those about moments. To mention that. I was just about to mention, last night, I mean, they go to Giovanni Gallegos when they're facing, I think it was 4, 5, and 6 in the order in the 8th inning. And we've seen at times this year where you could view that as a high-leverage spot, and we've seen Ollie turn to his closer, Ryan Helsley, in the 8th inning before. But he didn't, and instead he turned to him against 7, 8, and 9, which at the time... Look, I don't. I didn't question the move because it's kind of the old school thinking of, oh, you're tied in a game at home. Your closer comes in the ninth inning if he's available to keep it tied. Ollie decided to. I think someone asked him about it, and he explained it pretty well that we weren't just playing that inning. We were also playing for the tenth inning as well because we had the bottom of our order coming up as well. And he explained why the decision was to have Gallegos in the eighth. He even said like, hey, we considered sending Gallegos back out there for the ninth inning, but we ultimately decided to go to him in the return to Helsley in the ninth inning and even explained his thought process with the Jordan Hicks and then eventually turned to Packy not in decision. And I think that's the best thing about it is he's telling you exactly what he's thinking and why those moves are. Because at the time, a lot of the we've had this multiple times when we've gone to games where it's, okay, I don't fully understand what they're doing here. And then Ollie's able to explain it, his thought press, process of it. And I, to your point on him being a player's manager, I think he's at how many times have we talked about where he goes to the mound, where I think he did in the Milwaukee series over the weekend. Granted, part of that, I think Ollie, and, or excuse me, I think. Didn't he do that with Wayno, where he yeah. said, You've got this guy. Yeah, and he walked and up to Wayno. Don't make me take this ball from now, him. Now, Yadi and Wayno didn't acknowledge him until the very end, but he did <laughs> walk out to the mound, and he do, he's done that multiple times this year. And I think he's maybe even done with a reliever if I'm not mistaken and your point on the pool holes one too I mean how many times have we seen him where that big moment over the weekend you see yeah or excuse me you see Albert hit that bomb into left field who's one of the first guys to greet Albert in the dugout it's Ollie and it's not just the casual high five and then we're going to move on 
No, it was a big embrace in the dugout. So I believe Ali is such a – I know that sometimes he is critical of his own players out in the media, but I think he's a player's manager because he's willing to tell them the honesty up front, and then he's also willing to put the game into the player's hands, sticking with DeYoung in Washington, yep. going out to the mound and saying, okay, I have my reliever's ready. How are you going to approach this at-bat? Explain to me what you're going to do. Okay, perfect. I like that. You're you're my guy. Continuing I'm sticking with you. Continuing to go through with Dylan Carlson when he goes through a dry route, and you O'Neal. say, well, yeah, dry, Tyler O'Neill. Like, he has done this with pretty much every single player player on that roster where he's basically said you're our guy we trust you despite the struggles you're going through six five seven eight oh zero comfort service text line the mic drop feature is also on the 101 espn app what is your level of confidence right now in the cardinals first year manager given what we just talked about given what he said he's learned about himself so far we are now more than 100 games into the experience of what it looks like with ollie marmel as the cardinals manager and overall i I would say it's hard for anybody to suggest that it's not been overall a success. 64 and 51, first place in the division with six weeks to go. You're in a stretch right now where uh, since the All-Star break and specifically since the trade deadline, you've been one of the best teams in baseball. This looks like a pretty good team to me. And part of that is because of the way that Ollie's managing. Let's hear from Janet on the mic drop. I'm really impressed with Ollie Marmol. I think he's a really great manager, and I'm glad that we have him. Uh, I think he does really good with his management decisions. I haven't disagreed with very many that he's done. That's important right there. That's important. And I say that kind of jokingly because we love Janet, but I also say that honestly, like I can count on five hands. I can count on five hands. You get five hands. That'd be twenty-five opportunities. Okay, that's not right. I can count on one hand the amount of times that I've sat there and said, "What the hell is Ollie doing in this game this season?" Saturday being one of them. I can't count a lot of Saturdays this season. Whereas I have had a lot of moments in the past where you've been like, "What the hell is going on right now?" And that is a testament to what Marmol has done this season. Let's get to the next mic drop from Taven. I think Ollie is going to be a good asset for the team down the stretch, especially into the postseason. I think he's obviously going to be managing a lot different than TLR, Matheny, you know, Schiltz, you know, all the all that stuff. So maybe his approach will be a little bit more unconventional than what we're used to. Uh, but I think he'll make the right decisions um, down the stretch. So I'm going to ask this in all sincerity: How much different is it from what we saw with TLR? I think we're so far removed from what TLR was as a manager that sometimes we almost make it into a caricature of who he was. I just think it's because it's the World Series pedigree where it's like, well, he was a championship manager. Sure, but you can only do that when you get the opportunity. Absolutely, but that's what I'm and saying. And also, he wasn't that at the I, beginning. Like People did not like some of the stuff that he was doing early on in his time I here in like St. Louis. I the manager is the same thing we talk about when it comes to center field and first base and all these Hall of Famers where you judge him and you're like, well, he's not this. The reason I bring it up is just like, I don't remember a lot of TLR other than like the back years. So 2003 is a year that comes to mind for me, and specifically a guy like Eduardo Perez, where he was very splitty. He did not hit right-handers very well that season. So what happened? He didn't have a ton of opportunities against right-handed pitching. Meanwhile, he was basically this version of Albert Pujols against lefties. In 2003, he hit 355 with a 1,100 OPS against left-handed pitching. So what did the Cardinals do? They utilized Eduardo Perez against left-handed pitching. 
he was using platoons before platoons were what we now think of them to be. So I, I don't know that it's as different as some tend to believe in their minds. Like we, I think we just think of some of the decisions that they made in the playoffs, but even like pinch running or uh, bringing in a pinch hitter in a big spot or sticking with a guy like David freeze in a big moment, despite some of his struggles early on in that season. If you go back and look at what David freeze numbers were for the vast majority of the 2011 series, that is a guy who some teams might not have stuck with as long as that version of the Cardinals did. So I don't know. I do think it's definitely different than what we've seen from the previous two managers. There are a lot of differences between what we're watching this year and what we saw in the last two managers. But I think it is kind of more reminiscent for me of the type of manager that Tony LaRusso was, both in terms of him explaining things postgame, being open about his decision making processes and doing some of the more creative and modern approaches that TLR certainly had as as part of his bullpen management and uh, some of the players that he utilized as well. I was going to say, I think the biggest thing for when judgment will come down across Ollie is when you get to the postseason, and it's not necessarily even on him, but it will come down to bullpen usage and how he uses guys and how he tries to uh, maximize those guys coming into games with matchups and trying to figure that out. Because when you talk about TLR, what's the number one thing that pops into your mind? To me, it's bullpen it's management. It's 2011 and the way that yeah. you utilize that bullpen I mean, specifically. Especially that bullpen because of the moves that uh, John Mosellock made at the deadline to go fix that bullpen and TLR was able to maximize it and that's the thing that I think of with TLR is I always think of a guy that was very good at managing his bullpen and utilizing it to the best of its abilities and I think that's where kind of the judgment will come down on Ollie when you get to the postseason and and I think too part of the reason that we don't like I think part of the reason that we look at Ollie and we say okay I have so much confidence in and we and like Janice saying I I haven't really disagreed with some of the moves Ollie has made this season I think part of that is because You've gotten used to kind of the way he's managing, and you understand him better because of the truth that he's been sp- speaking to you through the media. Because early on, you could say, okay, well, I don't understand that move. But when he explains it to you, then you start to think that same process as Ali as the season goes along. And I think that's part of the reason why we've heard some people say, well, I haven't really disagreed with Ali that much. Okay, I think that's that's reasonable. And I think part of the reason for that is because Ali's telling you what the thought process is. And you're understanding, and you're understanding it. Yeah. it a lot better from his perspective than what you did before with, say, a Mike Schilt or a Mike Matheny, for example. Do you guys... Do you guys think that Ollie, when we get to the playoffs, is going to be an asset or a liability for the Cardinals? Like you're going into a series, and, and we know the teams that they could potentially play against in, in the playoffs. If they try to go on a run, you're going to go up against the best managers in the National League because the best managers in the National League happen to manage the best teams in the NL right now. you got Buck Showalter. you got Snitker with Atlanta. Uh, you got potentially Dave Roberts. You've got Bob Melvin, who I think is excellent with the Padres, and then potentially Craig Council. Those are that's a list of five of what the 10 best or five of the seven best managers in baseball right now. And they're all in the National League with the best teams. Do you think that Ollie realistically can be an asset against those managers? Because I do personally, I, I am I am that convinced of what we're watching right now. I mean, from it's, Ollie it's just so hard because like, how do you judge an asset like a manager being an asset? You judge it from the skill of the team. And if the team loses, everyone's going to go right to, well, Ollie wasn't good enough to get the job done, but like you have to look at the pieces with that. I think he's more likely to be an asset than a liability because I think the impact that a manager has is making sure that your roster is engaged and knows how meaningful the games are and puts the trust in the players. And then that shows itself up in the games. And he has done that all season long. It's harder for me to find 
a reason he would be a liability because I don't think he manages the bullpen incorrectly. I don't, I haven't seen him make the wrong decision in terms of pinch hitting or pinch running for players. I think he's more likely to be an asset with this roster than a liability. Yeah, I, I think it's more likely he's going to be an asset. I, I think he will be an asset, but I could see the tide quickly turning on him. And the reason I say that is because of his aggressive nature. And honestly, I like that, but I can just see how that would turn on some people once we get to the playoffs. And if he doesn't manage the bullpen well, which I think he's done a phenomenal job in his bullpen <laughs> usage this year, if he makes one mistake there and it comes back to bite him, or if he decides to play that over-aggressive or not over-aggressive, but that aggressive nature, then I think some people will view it as, well, he played over-aggressive, and he ended up costing the team the series, like what he did this weekend against Milwaukee. Yeah. I mean, if that it, it doesn't work out in that game, okay, it, does, it doesn't really matter. I get it, it's a big game, it's a big series, but it's the regular season. He does that in the playoffs, and it doesn't go his way. People are really going to become critical of him, even though I understand the aggressive nature and I like the aggressiveness. That's the kind of moment that will just flip the switch for people when mm-hmm. they look at a manager and fair or unfair that's when you really start to take the arrows as the manager of the club we've got some texters that are saying well i i miss mike schilt and we got one that said the question really is is he better than mike schilt and the answer is a definitive no you want to talk about high leverage moments where it didn't go well for somebody i can count a lot more moments of mike schilt that are going wrong i i can count one that that mattered it was the last one when he brought in Alex Reyes in a game when we all knew exactly what was going to happen in that spot if Alex Reyes was brought into the game. All of us. We all were texting during the game and we're like, oh, this doesn't end well. It was the same when Michael Walker came in and Mike Bettini put him in the game against the Giants. You knew what was going to happen the moment he stepped on the mound. And Schilt was about to fall for that mistake, too. He had Flaherty warming up in the bullpen, yeah. remember? So, like, I I understand. I, I still believe... That Mike Schilt is a good manager. I do. I, I think that if he was managing a National League team right now, he would be an upper half of the league manager because I think he's really good at his job. I also think that you can believe that while still believing, too, that Ollie Marmel is slightly better. Like I, I think the pieces that he's been given this year is a big part of this. Ollie didn't get those pieces. Or, excuse me, uh, Mike Schilt didn't get some of these pieces. I think part of why he didn't get some of these pieces is because the front office didn't necessarily believe that he was going to utilize him or utilize them the way that Ollie has. The platooning that you're seeing right now going on, the way that like if Albert Pujols was having this this season with Mike Schilt as the manager, do you guys think that Nolan Gorman would be getting the majority of the at-bats right now against right-handed no, pitching? I, don't think any, I do not. And I don't think anybody's pinch running for Albert Pujols either. Like that, it's just a they, difference. I don't think they would have sent Paul DeYoung down last year. I think it, we brought that up when they did it. And that's not to suggest that Schilt's bad. It's just different. It, it's just a different way to go about it. And so I do think that for some people, they wish that Albert was getting more opportunities against right-handed pitching. And so maybe that is why you, you're missing Schilt right now. But for me... Just with my baseball sensibilities, this is more in line with where I think that the game is going. And so I look at it going towards the playoffs and I say to myself, I think he's a, he's an asset for you. I think he can be a part of the reason as to why you end up winning. Those aggressive moves, especially when you're the underdog in the playoffs, I think you need some of that. And if you don't have that, I think you could play too safe and then you end up losing because you're not as good as the other team. And this team, let's be honest, it's not as good as the Mets or the Dodgers or the Braves. It's going to need some good breaks, and it's going to need some aggressive moves to just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. And I think Ollie's the manager that is willing to take those chances because, as you mentioned earlier, he's unafraid. He's not afraid to take chances, even if it comes back on him and we look back later on and we say, man, that one hurts because of the way that they managed. They went for broke, and it didn't work. 
just as they did on Saturday night. Coming up next, I got to give Alex an opportunity to gloat. I was wrong. He was right. I'm stupid. He's smart. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Yeah, Dak, we're skipping a start. And uh, with an emphasis being on um, just focusing on the left-handed hitters, honestly. Um, that's been his struggle. And uh, there's some things we want him working on and being intentional with. So we'll go ahead and get a couple bullpens in over the next couple days in order to do that. And then uh, he'll see that uh, second day in Arizona. All right. Get your jokes out with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks. And I'm Brandon Kylie. Dakota Hudson starting for the Cardinals on Saturday. I was wrong. You were right. Everything, blah, 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 blah. I get it. I get it. T-Bone. Alex, go ahead and take your moment to gloat. Dakota Hudson back in the rotation for the Cardinals. Go ahead, T-Bone. You can play it. I'm stupid. You're smart. I was wrong. You were right. You're the best. I'm the worst. Thank you very much for that. No, there's no reason to gloat here, man. We're all friends. Plus, I feel like I'm in the minority with this outcome. I feel like I'm the only one that's excited that Dakota hey, man, Hudson's he, getting this. This start. is your guy. You got it. You got to embrace it. I just, when you're right, go ahead and take it. The way that won. the way that they approached his last start against Colorado. And how they wanted the pace to be better, and they wanted him to be more aggressive, and he was all of those options in Colorado, where Miles Michaelis got lit up. And Dakota, although it was stressful for some people, four walks, six strikeouts, two earned runs, gave you five innings. Like he did what they wanted him to do. The pace was better. He induced the ground balls. He did give up the two earned runs. You did have the walks. And what they said, why they skipped this start, it didn't tell me that they were sick of Dakota Hudson and they wanted him to be done it told me that they just want him to refine certain areas. And I forgot who put it out there, but of like um, the majority of the left-handed hitters that he has seen this season, I think he's given up like a 70% walk rate to those left-handed hitters. Not not 70, but yes, it is high. (laughs) Well, whatever it is, it it was ridiculously high. I think John Denton had, I got to look up what the numbers were, but they wanted him to work against the lefties. So skipping that start, it just didn't scream to me, well, Dakota Hudson's done and this is their out. It screamed to me, go work on the lefties because you've got one more shot until Jack Flaherty is back. And I mean, in all reality, the last three starts, although they resulted in two losses, he pitched better. He's just not going deep into games for you, but he's given you what a guy fifth in your rotation should provide you. He reminds me so much of watching John Gant, where no, I don't feel doesn't. comfortable with anything that no, I'm seeing. He, he does. Doesn't. The numbers are remarkably I, similar. I, I, no, John Gant had a blow up. I, John Gant broke. Dakota Hudson will never break. Hudson could be pitching in the same place John Gant is next year. By the way, it's a 17% walk rate Thank against uh, yeah, left-handed to find, hitters. I was trying to find the tweet. I, I'm shocked because I don't, I don't know how much you're truly gaining from Hudson working with the staff in a week's time to work against left-handed pitching. If you truly want him to work against left-handed pitching, to me, when they said that, that signaled, where's the place to do that? That would be Memphis is where you want to go work on that and work on your pacing because you've got a pitch clock and you can start Jake Woodford. You're only basically buying time with, what, two starts until you're hoping Jack Flaherty is back. You can get away with that by going to Jake Woodford. Uh, I know that I think they were exploring the idea of potentially Zach Thompson getting those starts or honestly even turning to Matthew Libertor, but I I was I was stunned to see, hear that they were going to stick with Dakota Hudson because I thought the tea leaves were laying out, not the fact of, 
oh, yeah, they're just going to work with him, and then we'll go right back to him when it's time. I thought it was laying out the tea leaves of, yeah, we're skipping him kind of on purpose because we essentially want to give our four best arms a chance, and he's not our fifth best arm. Our fifth best arm's in our bullpen right now in Jake Woodford. So I don't think they believe Jake Woodford's the fifth best arm. I think they think that they can get the best. I think they look at Jake Woodford as it's like a lemon. We could squeeze whatever life we've got out of this for a couple of innings. But it, like putting Jake Woodford in the start over Dakota Hudson, Jake Woodford's going to give you probably close to what Dakota Hudson gave you. Four innings, might be good for two of them, might struggle the final two, and you're going to your bullpen. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of truth to that. They, they go about it in different ways, but the results are pretty similar more often than not. Libertor, like, Libertor to me is not coming He's back not up here until next year. Yeah, I don't think he'll be back. And Zach Thompson's a bullpen guy. Yeah, I mean, Dakota Hudson, basically what you expect out of him at this point is somewhere between four and five innings maybe he gets you into the sixth and he'll give up somewhere between three to five earned runs like that's kind of where he's been and what does jake woodford do kind of something similar like that's pretty much what i expect when he gets on the mound as well the difference is how they go about it jake woodford doesn't walk as many guys but he does give up a little bit harder contact and he gives up some more hits that that drop in against him uh jake woodford is less likely to get those double plays so it's a little tougher to him for him to get out of some of those jams but he also has a little bit better strikeout stuff so it's just different but the results end up being something resembling basically the same thing and so we got a text six five seven eight oh is your comfort service text line uh from the three one four Guys, what did you see from Jack Flaherty last night, and how does he impact all of these conversations? I think it's significant. Jack Flaherty made a start last night down in Double A, and he got to 50 pitches right around that mark. Yeah, he's expected to go like 65 in his next one, and then get to the 80 plus threshold whenever he makes his final rehab start in the fourth fourth appearance down in the minors. Um, and then they're they're hoping that by the end of the month he's able to make a start for the Cardinals. So, how does that influence what they're doing here? I think it's huge because that means you're probably only getting two more starts out of Dakota Hudson. He's going to start on Saturday. He starts one more time the following week. And my guess is the next time that spot in the in the rotation comes up, it's going to be Jack Flaherty's opportunity to get that. Start. And I wouldn't be surprised if Dakota Hudson is optioned down to Memphis when that happens, because I think he stays because at that point you're you're basically into September. So but, but he might even to, if he is, it's like a two day thing right, where they're just sending much. him down to get a little bit of rest and he's not going to make an, an appearance. Uh, down there. It would be made. It wouldn't surprise me also if he's like on an, an IL stint or something like that to where they could just work with him, because if he's not in the rotation, I just don't see a role for him in your bullpen because you're not going to unless you're going like the TJ McFarlane route where you're however blowouts. He's good against righties, right? We just talked about that. Yeah. Maybe he takes over a role where he only comes in to face right handed hitters and you just say to yourself, you know what? He's a ground ball guy. Is Dakota Hudson significantly worse in that role than what we've seen from uh, Jordan Hicks? Like, last night is a perfect example of this. Yeah, you're right. You're in that second inning where Jordan Hicks ends up getting that opportunity to come out there. If Dakota Hudson was in the bullpen, I think they would go to Dakota Hudson in that spot. I'm so, I'd be worried about the walks in that spot, though. In say, that tight of a for game. one inning? Like, your option there is is very simple. You're either going to Andre Pallante, who's been getting crushed against right-handed hitters all yep. season long. He's got a 900 OPS against against right-handed hitters. He's got a reverse split where lefties really struggle to hit Andre Pallante's, but the righties get him pretty good. Jordan Hicks, who has the walk issues as well, and at that point has already gotten you out of that inning where you had the, the bases loaded when he came into the game. It wasn't perfect, but he got you out of it, and you had an opportunity to still win later on. The next inning... Go to Palante, go back to Hicks for the second inning, which I know a lot of our texters are frustrated with, and I saw on the text or on my Twitter feed last night, people were upset about. Or you go to who? I, 
I, I think Dakota Hudson would have been in that spot last yeah, night. Yeah, if you if you use Dakota Hudson out of the bullpen against righties, I, I, the walks obviously are going to scare me. Like he's not going to be a member of the circle of trust anytime soon. But I think you have the guy who can come in and get those ground balls. Like he, little Matthew Bowman there, where you're bringing him in to induce those ground balls immediately, and you're getting one inning out of him. I think the, the question is just going to become... Does he make the playoff roster in that conversation? See, I don't think And so. I guess that's the competition down the stretch of what's your bullpen look like, yeah. who's good against the splits, and what does Jose Also, what Quintana, do the righties do in, in your yeah. bullpen down the stretch? And what do those guys look like? And, and Cabrera fits into this conversation, right. too, because he's really struggled lately. And if they don't trust him to get righties out consistently, yeah. you have to have somebody in that spot. That's you, a bridge righty that can get right-handed hitters out. You know when you get to the back end of the pen, it's Gallegos and Helsley. You're good there. You know that if you're going into a spot where you've got a bunch of lefties coming up in a row, it's going to be either Packy Naughton or Andre Pallante, maybe Cabrera in other spots. Who's the righty? Who's the righty that fits into that fifth, sixth, seventh inning mix? Right now, you don't really have one other than Jordan Hicks that's developed. And you also then ask the question, what do the roles look like for the starting pitchers? Like, do you have a spot on the roster for the Quintanas and the Mats if they're available? And what's Flaherty's role? Like, there's a lot of questions that come into it when he becomes a bullpen piece for you. But it, And those guys are all lefties who are better yeah, against left-handed hitters. It makes so much sense, and it's why I said that I just don't see them skipping Dakota Hudson and not giving him another start. It felt like he was the guy that was getting you to Jack Flaherty's return. Yeah, see, I I don't even want to continue. I, I just don't trust him enough to go out there. And I know that we talk about what he struggled against lefties. Dakota Hudson has when you're looking at his numbers because of all the walks. I mean, they're not hitting him, but you look at right-handers. I mean, they're hitting 299 against him, have a 788 OPS. Like, to me, Dakota Hudson isn't going to have a role of a one-inning, three right-handers coming up. To me, he's going to take Jake Woodford's spot in the bullpen where it is just you're going to be a long reliever. And then when you get to the playoffs, I don't think he has that role, and I think he doesn't come on the playoff roster. What, would you trust Dakota Hudson to go to an inning against three right-handed pitcher, or excuse me, three right-handed hitters in a spot where it's a like one-run game and it's, say, like the sixth inning? I wouldn't have that trust. What are my options? Yeah, I was going to say. That, that's the, the thing. I, I'm, I, see, I'm not putting the ball as my options. See, I, I still would rather turn to someone like a Pallante, even though Against his splits righties? are bad. I, I would trust Pallante more. I trust Pallante more, though, coming into a game than I do against Dakota Hudson. But explain to me why, because I, the numbers think, don't think, bear I, that out. I think I understand that his splits are against right-handed pitchers, but i got a high ground ball rate, so I'll take my yes, chances with so this guy. I get it. I don't trust Hudson. Hudson walks the world, and I think Hudson puts you in a tougher spot. But Dakota but Hudson if, walks the world when you're going longer in a game. If we're going one inning... I, I just wouldn't turn to Hudson. I, also, I'm Hudson sorry. I just issues, can't go with it. Or, excuse me. Uh, Pallante has issues walking... Um, I know, but well. I don't feel. He's I, got the I same have a more. Rate. I have a more comfortable feel on Palante than I do with Hudson. It's fine, man. And you it's more a feel than it it's is on a split. Oh, he's got his gut. You hate Hudson. That's fine. Just say it. Hey, I said I would have given him a contract extension earlier in the year. I thought he was going to be a <laughs> hell of an asset. <laughs> oh, backwards, Cat BK is back. Someone texted in and said, Alex, what happened? He's a fifth starter now. You said he was an ace. I said this season he's a fifth starter. My boy will be the ace next year. Watch out. Won't be in the rotation. Oh, yeah, you will. Guys, you're really going to go against me on the Hudson thing? I already told. I already proved you wrong with this. Don't so do it again. We, we just talked about how the Cardinals lack some uh, some good options against right-handed hitters. Yeah, I thought I thought we like we trusted this entire bullpen. Was it the last time we had a circle of trust? Like eight people were in this bullpen? All right, in the circle? Yeah, we had six. Yes. T-Bone. Should, uh, Getting a little antsy with a... Uh, 
You're getting a little excited over here with the circle of trust. Should we update them? Yeah, because I think we need to. I think we've got a couple that are going to have to be booted because some of them aren't even here anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah, we got to update. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? Tell me, who do you trust? It's the Cardinals Circle of Trust with BK and Ferrario. There's got to be. Uh, let me guess on the names that are not on this team anymore. Yep. Nick Whitgren? Nope. He's not, he wasn't in there? No. It's Junior Fernandez. Yeah, I remember the Junior Fernandez and the James Nail. Oh, is Nail uh, in the Nail, circle Nail of trust? Nail didn't get in. Nail didn't uh, get in. So Fernandez. It wasn't Verhagen. I know it wasn't Verhagen. It wasn't McFarlane. Is, uh, ju- just just Junior. I thought you said there were two. Thompson. Uh, but he's, he's, still in my, he's still in my trust. Yeah, he, he's an honorary trustee. All right, here's what we have currently in the Cardinal circle of trust. Ryan Helsley, keeping him in. We're all good with that. We don't need to have any discussion yeah, there. He's even, been awesome. I don't even know why you bring his name up. Giovanni there... Gallegos. <laughs> yeah, he, he was awesome last night. Keep fine. him in. The, the, the time Giovanni prior, Gallegos though. is fantastic against right-handed That's great. <laughs> I get a little tight butt cheeks, but he's not coming out of the circle. He's not coming out, but he, he makes me he makes me nervous. Zach Thompson, despite the fact that he's in Memphis right now, are we good with him staying in our circle of trust? He's an honorary yeah. trustee, but he's not yeah. in, he's not invited until he's back. He'll up. be back. He'll be back. You hope. Uh, you guys Austin could have been crossing out uh, Junior Fernandez. Yeah. Remember when you tried to sell us on Junior Fernandez? And I, I think said, he deserves to be an honorary member. I, I said, guys, we've done this Junior Fernandez thing before. He looks great for a few games, and then it's boom. I still vote he's an honorary member. You put everyone in. Andre Pallante back in now that he's out of the I rotation. A 900 OPS. You don't like him against right-handers. He's great against lefties. Yeah. Nerd. Packy Naughton. He yeah. was in there. How do yeah. we feel about Packy right I'm now? I'm keeping the Packy. He's going to pack up lefties and send them home. Hey, so yeah. that's my joke, you jerk. Come on, Dad. You're supposed to catch up to that. Just call me Dad. That made me uncomfortable. So Packy Naughton has his role. He's pretty darn good in that role. You just don't want him to be more than what he is in that role. He is very good at striking out left-handed hitters. And he's very good at striking out left-handed hitters. If you need to get out of a GM, just like last night, he's the guy that I'm coming to against a lefty for one spot to be able to get out of that GM. Or if you need length, if you just, it's seven to one, one way or the other, you need length. He's able to give you that as well. I think those are the two scenarios in which you go to Packy Naughton. Is that good enough, though, to be able to be a member of the Circle of Trust? I mean, what kind of question is that? Yeah. I mean, look at the committee that we're in here with, like Ryan Helsley, Giovanni Gallegos. I don't know, man. Like, we're getting kind of one-sided I'm with this. I'm still voting for James here. Nail, too. God, stop putting everyone in it, Dan. I'm it. just looking at his splits. So, Pretty good against right-handers. Vote. I, yes I, or say, no. I say no. Is, is I say yes. Packy not in the circle of trust? I say yes. I say no. I felt pretty good about him coming in against Blackman yesterday. Just didn't work. That worked out well. Uh, hey, Mr. BKO. I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna tighten up the circle a little Thank bit you. here. Let me do some Packy house cleaning. not a part of it. I like Packy Naughton. Specific situations, I'm good with it. But you got to be able to do more than that to be able to be in my circle of trust. Here's a big one that we need to discuss. Oh, yeah. Hennessy Cabrera. Ooh. Is he a member of your circle of trust right now? Man, so we haven't seen him since August 11th. I don't know if he's in Ali Marmol's circle of trust. The last right time now. we saw him, it was in Colorado. He gave up four consecutive hits, four earned runs, two homers. It didn't go well for him in that it spot. It didn't go well for Packy in Colorado either. 
Didn't go, let's be honest, yeah, didn't go well no. for any of the pitchers. Other than Dakota but Hudson. That was that was part of a trend. In his six appearances prior to that, five hits, three walks, four earned run, earned runs rather, had a six ERA, including a homer. He's been getting hit a lot harder lately. His ERA has jumped a full run over the course of the last month. It's so wild looking at this, though, because I'm looking at the Cubs and the Yankees outing and he was electric, Mm -hmm. but the Nationals and the Rockies one, it was awful. And he has not been striking people out the way that he was earlier in the season either. He's been one or zero strikeouts in each of his last. What is it now? Nine appearances. He's got one strikeout since July 29th. Um, Is he in your circle of trust? He's not for me. Yeah, I don't think he's in for me. I think I think he's out now because I do start to get a little nervous when Henesis Cabrera comes into the game. He needs to work his way back into my he, good graces. He's not striking people out. Like that's the biggest thing mm-hmm. with Henesis Cabrera is the velocity and the ability to get guys striking out from the left side, and you're not seeing it right now. So I'm going to say no. Also, I think I'm going to agree with you guys. He's struggled since the All Star break. I think he's going to have to come out of the circle. Of is trust. he worn out? Like, I, just think he's I don't know struggling. what it is. I, I think he's just going through just some going struggles. Through I think he went through something like this last year, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Last year in July, I think was it was July and August when we were looking yeah. like his numbers really ballooned from what they were. So for whatever reason, July and August, he has his struggles. I think he can work out of it. I'm not super concerned. Um, yeah, last year in the month of July, he had a 7.3 ERA. The month of August, he had a 7.6 ERA. And then... You got into September. They had their 17-game winning streak. He had a 1.4 ERA. Yeah. So he was able to work through it. He found himself on the other side. The hope is that he's able to yeah. do that once again. So he could get back into, get into it. September. You just you got to kind of like Packy. You got to put yourself back Absolutely. into it. Last one here. Is there anybody that's currently in the rotation oh, or say. down in the minors that you would want to throw into your Cardinals bullpen circle of trust on the front end? Well, yeah, Tanner would like to throw all of Memphis into it, if that's okay with you. Zach Thompson's probably the only one that I'm okay with throwing into it. I don't know if there's anybody else for me. Yeah, that's kind of where I am. I don't. I all can't right. think. I, James Dale. I was just looking. He has such a small sample size. He's been really good when he's been up here. Just don't he's know if he's been awesome a, against right-handed pitchers. I just so, don't know if there's a role for him with so many people on this. Like you got so many options right now. Well, I just don't know if there's I'm, a spot for him. We're clearly desperately looking for somebody to get right-handers out, <laughs> yeah, and James true. Dale seems like he can do it. So <laughs> to the expense of getting rid of Packy Naughton and Andre Pallante. Yeah, I think Zach Thompson's the only guy I'm, I'm talking right, in this so conversation. Your Cardinals bullpen circle of trust. No, it's the way it should be. Ryan Helsley. Giovanni Gallegos, Zach Thompson, and Andre Palante. We're very happy for all of you, the four members of the Circle T-shirts of Trust. T-shirts coming to all four of yeah. you. They'll be sent to your uh, locker in the clubhouse soon. We should get T-shirts made up and give them to them whenever we go we to the next have game. a T-bone with T-bone's face on it. I yeah. like that. Makes we no sense. Get, we got to make a road trip to Memphis. Uh, apparently, the f- what do you think that would be like for the members of the bullpen oh. that we did not give the T-shirts to? Oh, what do you think it would be like for the members that you gave them to? They'd go in the trash. No, they, I, I think uh, I've got a good relationship with Palante. I think we would. Yeah, you, you would oh, appreciate you, it. Do you, you and Palante got a good relationship? Yeah, together? we've talked at least three times. Yeah. Me and Palante, <laughs> we're boys with Palante. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Nope. Coming up in ten minutes. Are the Braves building a juggernaut <laughs> or a team that's going to be out of contention because they have given up way too much money to young players like Tanner thinks in five years? We'll get into that coming up at one o'clock. The juncture is next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Together Credit Union. Pay yourself with every purchase. Open and achieve it. Checking account today. 
Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. So what would you do if when you went to buy a home, instead of getting one home, they gave you 87 homes for the price of that one? Okay, nice. all of them are haunted. Steal. <laughs> T-Bone and I have very different are thoughts. Are you letting a learning anybody? Are you immediately trying to sell the other 86 that Hell you didn't yeah. buy? What's, what's your plan in this scenario? You I'm, buy one, and for some reason, you now have the deed and are the owner of 87 homes in that area. I'm keeping the best one, and then I'm immediately finding another realtor, and I'm selling 86 of them. That's good business. And right that there. is how you make money. So this is what happened to a lady in Nevada. She bought one home that was at the price of $595,000. That is a very nice home. Ma'am, I hope you enjoy it. However... And not in Vegas. The county recorder's office accidentally gave her that property and also more than 80 other lots. Fine. So what happened is that the property included several home sites built that and others that do not have homes yet. So she had the lot that she could sell to somebody else. So they're still going through the the process of figuring out what exactly to do. According to the county, this is something that does happen occasionally. I was unaware that this is an issue. I need to move to Nevada then. Yeah. (laughs) So, So apparently it was a copy and paste error. They copied something over and pasted it into the deed, and it just included all of the homes. And this lady, she's like an Alex. I would assume that this is Alex's immediate reaction. Everyone should be like an Alex. They said that if if the lady, Alex, participated and was willingly able to say, you know what? Okay, clearly a mistake on your part. We'll get this taken care of. Super easy to fix. Unfortunately, she does not appear to be that way because they were already on sale. And according to this story in USA Today, there were multiple that had already been oh, purchased. Yes. So now, Those not only do they have to transfer back the deeds to the state, they also have to get the people that have purchased no. these new deeds why to hand them over and figure out what to do about those purchases. This is the this is the realtor's fault. This is the person. Can you imagine? Being in this spot. How many homes did you say this was? 86. Yeah. How did, when you're copying, pasting that, wouldn't yeah. you look at that and go, man, this seems like a lot. Surely this can't be ever yeah. just one home. How are you copying, pasting? Like, are you just control aing like an entire document? I, I'm sure that's what it was, right? Like, they, they tried to. But don't you know that there's other houses on that document before you control A it? Apparently not. I, I mean, we've done this. I'm sure that you guys have done this in something in your life where. Yeah, my master's degree. <laughs> You're just not paying attention completely and you make a mistake. You don't double check it and then it gets out into the world and you're like, oh, no. Oh, no, I didn't do that right. Like I've done this in college. I had a, a video that I did, didn't edit properly. What kind and of then video there was, was like this? blank space for like 20 seconds in the middle of it. Is and this- should I have gone back through and re-edited it or made sure that proof read it basically? Sure, yeah, absolutely. That would have been the right way to go about it. But it gets away from you, and now it's just out into the world. Is this video still available for people to, v- no, to view? No, it was never seen by anybody, which is probably for the best. Probably saved a lot of people's eyeballs. I, uh, I've sent in the wrong paper before, but they gave it back. To Somebody me. on the text line said, this back. is a major title company screw-up. Yeah, and you I, think? And <laughs> I'm not going to be, if I sold those houses, there's my money now. That's my money now. Yeah, you I'm not gave me you. 86 houses. I'm going to keep this the one. Like, this is like the story. I don't remember. This has probably been a year since we had this. When someone found the winning lottery ticket and they turned it in and ended up getting the millions of dollars. Yeah. Or I think they didn't turn it in. That's not Hey, happening. man, you throw free money at my door. You threw it away. It. 
in that lottery ticket since. You threw it away, I picked up the trash, and it turned out to be a million dollars. 100%. You, you miss... You misedited a document that was only supposed to be one. That's not my fault. Now I'm going to sell these houses and make a profit. Yeah, I would be very curious to see. I'll, I'm going to be following this story as it might continues. I, I would imagine this is going to go to court. I might sell all like, of them and then buy myself a huge house. Well, sure. Yeah, I, I would keep like two or three of them. Again. Yes, <laughs> I would keep probably like two or three of them. Rent out a couple of them. Well, I mean, you you can afford the electric bill and the mortgage on them now because you got 85 exactly. other houses. I'm going to sell. sell the other 84 lots or whatever. I'm selling all of them and moving in with Tanner. Someone texted it in. I'm moving to San Diego. Like, I'll, I'll be out there while these properties are moving out in San Nevada. Diego. I'm going to buy a casino in Vegas. Sure. Yeah, I'm dude, set up. You can do whatever. I mean, if this is a $500,000 home and you have 80 of them, you are now a millionaire. Quick you math. Have, do it. Pause the math question. 84 times 500,000. Uh, 4.2 mil, baby. I think it's like 40 <laughs> mil. Wow. I think it's like 40 mil. 500,000 times, times 80? 2 would be 1 mil. Hold on. I don't I don't trust your Oh, map. you're right. That's yeah. 40 mil. Times 84. Ooh, buddy. That's 42 million dollars. Yeah, I'm buddy. buying a casino. Wow. We are living large. Guys, let's go. Let's move to Nevada. We are getting something resembling Michael Harris money with that. Speaking of Michael oh, Harris, that guy oh, stud got a big time deal yesterday Bad with the Braves. Contract. Are the Cardinals going to regret doing all these long term deals? Or is this the start of something that is going to be special, similar to the 90s Braves over the next decade? We'll talk about that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Knocks it down, slips, but fires to first, and that's your game. The Braves have shut out the Mets and are now three and a half games out of first with two left to play here in Atlanta. The Braves are on fire right now. I saw a stat yesterday. They've won like 40 of their last 46 games against teams not named the Mets. And last night they were able to take down the Mets. They have dominated in the first couple of games in this series against New York. They're now only a couple of games back in the division. I think there's a real chance they win that division this year. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. That's not why we're talking about them, though, right now. Alex, Michael Harris was the kid that we talked about earlier this this season that the Braves decided to bring up straight from double A skipped triple A entirely with him he's 21 years old and he's been outstanding for them he's one of the most impressive young players that I've seen against the Cardinals this season plays legit gold glove defense in center field has great contact hits for a little bit of power as well and yesterday they decided to honor him with an eight-year 72 million dollar contract extension before his first season in the big leagues comes to an end so the way this is going to go He's going to make $5 million each of the next two years, which is significantly more than he would have otherwise made in pre-arbitration yeah, money. And he would have been, was he still prospected? Like he was still in the minors before, like he was called up this season, correct? Correct. Yeah. He would have been pre-arbitration each of the next two years. So Oof. he would have made basically league, league minimum. minimum. Oof. 2025, $8 million. And then same thing the following year. And then he gets to $9 million, $10 million for two seasons, $12 million. And then in his age 31 and 32 seasons, the Braves have an option on him, club option, at 15 and $20 million. They can buy that out for $5 million if they want to, Damn. though. So he is going to be with the Braves if they want him to 
for the next decade. They essentially locked up the entirety of his prime for $72 million. Guys, the question that I have is, are the Braves going to regret doing this? Not just specifically with Harris, but you now have Austin Riley signed through 2023, Matt Olson through 2030, Ronald Acuna and Von Grissom through 2028, Ozzie Albies 2027. I looked this up just a little bit ago. If you just go to 2025, that is three years down the road after this season, the Braves are on the hook for $95 million for Olsen, Riley, Acuna, Iglesias, Harris, and Albies. Is this going to be a problem for them down the road, or are they going to be thrilled to have those six players for only $95 million at that point? And how much is a usual budget for the Atlanta Braves? This year, their payroll is about $185 million. My assumption would be if they continue having playoff success, they'd be willing to bump that up a little okay, bit. Okay, so this is not going to be a regret at all. In fact, I think this is advantage Atlanta for what they have because they have a core locked up that is significantly better than... I would say probably over 75% of the Major League Baseball's core of players. I mean, you're talking about an MVP in Riley, an MVP caliber in Acuna, and then you've also got Matt Olson, Ozzie Albies, and this Harris who has showed that he is a really good player for $95 million. Like, how much money do you have tied up Cardinals-wise in Goldschmidt and Arenado? $60 million. $60 million in two guys. And they've got all of those players locked up for $92 million. You basically have your two cornerstones, what they have their three cornerstones, and Olsen, Riley, and Acuna Jr. signed for. Atlanta is in as good of a shape as you can ask for as an organization for what they have done with these younger players. And honestly, I think that that's a pretty good extension for this this Michael Harris for how good we've seen from him. And if he just continues to improve, you'll be paying this guy $6, $7 million in three years, and he might be one of the better center fielders in the game. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would have done the Harris deal just as an example, but I, I, it's hard to look at these deals and say that they're going to look back and regret this because if if their payroll is going to sit around what it is now, I mean, they basically can double essentially what they've already got on the books there. I mean, they've got another $80 million potentially to spend, which is, which is going to be huge for them. The biggest reason I think that I look at the Braves and I say this is kind of a, this is a success, and I think this is a success for them, is because I don't see guys like Albies or Cunha or uh, Matt Olson that are going to like just tail off all of a sudden. I mean, they're still very young players. They still have their prime of their careers coming, and they're on basically below market value deals because, like, I mean, we can all say it. Like, Acuna is worth more than $15 million when he's right. He's going to be worth more than $17 million when he's right. He's going to be potentially a $30 million player, and you're getting him on a $13 million discount. So I. I typically don't like this extension route, and I think it's risky as hell and still would not do this if I were building the Atlanta Braves. But the fact of the matter that you've been able to get some guys and hit on these contract extensions, yeah, it's hard for me to look at this and say now that three years from now they're going to regret some of these extensions. I think there's a couple they may regret. I think they could regret this Harris one. I'm not completely sold that he's the guy that I would given this extension to and then we were just talking about this they've got Iglesias locked up based on a trade that they got him from I think that deal is going to hurt in the back end but it's tough to look at like the Acuna Albies deals and say yeah those ones are going to come back to bite Bobby Boogie just tweeted this out Michael Harris since he's arrived in Atlanta 50 and 21 averaging 5.3 runs a game with an 802 OPS before him they had 4.2 runs a game and a 702 OPS I will say his profile as a hitter is concerning He's super fast, and he makes pretty good contact. Like, when he hits the ball, he hits the ball hard more often than not. He never walks. I mean, an alarmingly low walk rate. But you're getting a gold glove defender in center field. I'm totally with you. And he chases a ton. 
98% of baseball chases at a lower rate than Michael Harris. He is one of the worst in baseball. He's also incredibly young. He's 21 years old. This could change. He could develop as a hitter. And two years from now, you're looking back at this and saying, BK, remember when Michael Harris was chasing a lot? Now he's one of the better ones in baseball at, at not chasing those pitches. But right now, swings and misses a lot, chases a lot, never walks. He is in swing mode at all times. That can work, but eventually are, are the pitchers going to see that and they make an adjustment. And now, instead of being a gold glove defender that's hitting on the season like 275 is he a guy that is a gold glove defender that's more in the lane of a Harrison Bader who's batting 240 and now you're wishing that you had him at 10 million dollars instead of what you're eventually going to be paying him it's possible I still would have done the deal I like having this guy locked up for the long term and now I know that the biggest thing to me is I've got cost certainty I know exactly what he's going to cost me over the next decade to be able to keep him within my organization. And now I can make other decisions based upon that. I know what I do and do not have in future years. If you go to arbitration, if he has a huge year, the year before an arbitration number, he could get way more than what you're potentially going to be paying him here as a gold glove defender, going to potentially steal a bunch of bases, going to hit for power. Maybe he gets that average up that season before, and now you're paying the freight for it. So I like giving out deals like this to players that I think are close to a sure thing. And on this one, the deal is just, I think it's fair for both sides Mm -hmm. in the Albies and Acuna deals. Those are so obvious for the team that you had to do that. That was especially the Albies deal. I mean, it's, it's absurd what he is making over the next few years. He's at $5 million this year. And then he makes $7 million each of the next three years. And he's an all-star. He's amazing. Like he's making less than Colton Wong. That doesn't make any sense to anybody. So that one was obvious for the team as well. This one's more fair for both the player and the team. I love the way that they're building, though. I really do. I I think they're going to be very good over the next few years. And Tanner, we were talking about this off air. You mentioned that the pitching, they're going to have to start developing the pitching as well. Are they going to have to keep that pipeline going for these position players uh, to be able to have the success that they want to have? And that's where, of course, the Cubs ran into their issues. I would say twofold for me in terms of why I'd, I would go almost on the other side of that. That's for everybody. Every every team has to develop pitching. And if you don't, you're going to fall into some roadblocks. This makes it maybe a little bit more difficult because you have less money to spend in the free agent market. But I don't want to spend money in the free agent market for starting pitching anyways if I don't have to. And the other thing is they've proven that they can. I don't know if it'll be consistent, but so far they have developed Kyle Wright. You look at what they had previously, although the injuries have kind of derailed it, but Soroka was a very good starter that they developed within their organization. Like Fultonevich was for a while before he got banged up and, and was gone. Before he mentally wasn't there the same way anymore. Max Freed has been very good for them. Like they've, Spencer Strider this year has been awesome. So they've developed some guys within their organization. So it, at least they've proven to me they have the, op, the ability to do it. The Cubs never did that. And then the other thing is, them locking these guys up long-term means that the core is going to be around. So you don't have that short window where you're going for it in every single season and you're selling off the future the way that the Cubs did because they felt like they had three years, and if they don't win in this three-year stretch, it's over and those guys are all gone. How about the Nationals? Like They're doing the polar opposite of what the Washington Nationals did where they had the three pitchers and you had the three big hitters, and then when you win one championship, but then the next year you start selling all of the pieces off. I mean, you're doing the polar opposite of that. You're saying that for the next three years, we're World Series contenders. And then beyond that, we have the pieces in place to continue to add complementary pieces and contend for a World Series. And just looking at their books here, looking at what they've got in terms of their contracts, 
it looks like the way they're going to play this is they're essentially going to go cheap on pitching. And when I say that is they're not going to lock up the pitchers to ca- contracts unless they prove that they yep. are steady the- forces. I mean, I look at, I'm look i looking at their payroll right now. The highest paid guy on the Atlanta Braves is Charlie Morton, a guy that you knew was going to do it, and that was a pretty good deal, $20 million. Kenley Jansen, proven reliever, one year, $16 million. Nobody on that pitching staff makes more than $10 million this season. Now, that will change when Iglesias' deal shoots up to $16 million. But all their starting pitching, minus Morton, makes less than $10 million. So they've got a pretty good deal, and I think what they're going to do is they're just going to play it out. And if they have to go to the free agent market, they'll go get some of those veteran guys that you know what you're going to get on from them one year deal, on so one-year deals. So it doesn't deals. become a total problem for them five years down the road. That's then, where you get yourself into trouble. And then hopefully in a two-year span, maybe you end up replacing that one-year deal with a guy that you've developed internally. That's how the Braves look like they're doing it, and I think that's the right way to build. I would never do a big contract with a pitcher. I'm more inclined to do it with position players. I, I'm still more hesitant on it, but it makes more sense to me when you do those with position players than the pitcher's route. I I really love the way that they're going about it. Me and it, the the fact that they've locked up so many guys to such long-term deals, if I'm a Braves fan right now, it also makes me happier as a fan base. Like your team won the World Series last year and they're still going for it. They're still they're they're showing you continue coming to the ballpark, continue supporting this team because these are your stars not just for right now, but also for the next decade. This is the next winning window for the Atlanta Braves. I really respect that about them. I wish more organizations approached it the way that the Braves did as opposed to going through these ups and downs and ups and downs, the peaks and valleys. I this the Braves are showing every team that is in a mid to upper market this is the way to go about it. When you've got the when you've got the talent, this is the way that you're able to keep them locked up. I do understand though the way that they got here is that they did tank. Yeah. So you have to have that on the front end as a disclaimer. This is not something that the Cardinals could follow, but when you tank, there has to be the payoff. The Baltimore Orioles, hey, when you get into the window, please do what the Braves just did. Don't just have a three-year window where you're right. winning and then you sell everything off and then you're back into sink mode Same again. Same with the Pirates. You, you got to be able to keep some of these guys. And that's what I think the Braves are showing everybody. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll talk to Chris Kerber. More likely to happen is next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. What's more likely to happen? They'll figure it out. BK and Ferrario's most likely to happen. is the air comfort service tax line guys more likely to happen the blues extend ryan o'reilly for three years or the cardinals end up keeping tyler o'neill for the rest of his contract i'm gonna go with extending ryan o'reilly i think it's gonna be more than three years i think they're gonna keep him for the longevity of his career every time i've said that it has not happened with the players i'm hoping this one's right but i i, I don't know if they stick with tyler o'neill for the foreseeable future I think Ryan O'Reilly is going to be your captain until he decides to call it a career. I think I'm going to go more likely Tyler O'Neill. I, I think if you had a Ryan O'Reilly contract extension, if you were going to do that, I think we would have already heard about it. And for whatever reason, I'm starting to get the vibes that. Yeah, because Doug Armstrong leaks, leaks information all the time. No, but I just think that they would do it already. Like, I mean, we've talked about it. It's hard to find a guy that goes into camp in a contract year and ends up getting the extension. Like, Braun, I thought he was a lock. Didn't happen. Uh, Petrangelo, I thought that was a lock. Didn't happen. 
I'm starting to lean towards Ryan O'Reilly may not occur. And I think it's more likely the Cardinals see the upside in Tyler O'Neill and decide to keep him till he gets to free agency. So I think it's more likely Tyler O'Neill. What date does uh, training camp again, Alex? It's like September 17th or something like that. It's the week before their first preseason game, and the first preseason is September 24th. Give me a month. Uh, I think they, then yeah. if if at that point in time they don't have Ryan O'Reilly signed long term or signed to an extension, then I'll be with you, Tanner. But I I never expect anything to be done around this time of the calendar yeah. year for for hockey because this is when the general managers, president of hockey operations, they're out of town, they're on vacations. This is like the only downtime mm-hmm. on in the calendar year. So I think it happens sometime between training camp and the in the final week of preseason, kind of like when Braden Shen signed his extension. Yeah, I, I would say it's more likely that O'Reilly ends up getting re-signed. Uh, guys, more likely to happen, Mizzou beats Georgia in football this year or the Cardinals make it to the World Series in baseball this year. I think it's more likely the Cardinals beat oh the Cardinals get to the World and Series. you call yourself a Tigers fan? M-I-Z. I, I mean, Georgia's on another level. Do they too. have Luther Burden? No, but they've got like seven Luther Burdens. Oh, okay. They've got well, backups that are not quite Luther Burden, but pretty damn close. Okay, well, I'll go uh, Cardinals make it to the World Series. Oh, yeah, <laughs> They've got a sweep. defensive lineman this year that's a better defensive tackle than Jordan Davis. No. I'm totally serious. Blasphemy, very, sir. very different, but he's... Blasphemy, sir. Potentially a number, like, three overall picture. Can this guy defend an entire offensive line by yeah. stretching his hands? He's amazing. What's his What's his size? What's the frame? It's like 260. What's the size? 6'5". Like Davis was 6'7". Find me a taller man. You can't. Next. This is a clean sweep. It's more likely <laughs> the Cardinals get to the World Series. Like, that Missouri-Georgia game just... Save yourself some time and watch another college football game. They don't stand a chance. Uh, 65780 is the air comfort service text line. M-I-Z. Guys, more (laughs) likely to happen. Adam Wainwright or Dakota Hudson is in the Cardinals rotation next year. That's a really interesting one, actually. Man, I'm going more and more of the assumption that Waino is going to call it because I think that like I think this is going to be a big year. I don't know if they win the World Series, but I think this is going to be a really interesting postseason run. And for how he's pitched, I I just I keep feeling that Wayno's going to look at this and say, "This is the time to to exit." Pujols and Yadi are leaving. Yadi's leaving. I don't know what that rotation is going to look like next year. This is my time to walk away on top. I feel like Wayno is going to leave, so that's why I think it's more likely Dakota's there. I think I'm going to go more likely that it's Wayno. I I think Wayno's still got another year left, and I think he comes back for one more. Now, if the Cardinals will have him back is maybe more of a question, but I, I think Wayno comes back for one more season. I mean, I think he's still got one more year left, and especially if they don't win the World Series. I mean, next year they could be really primed for a World Series run. I mean, I'm looking at the rotation next year. Michaelis Flaherty, Montgomery, Mats. Okay, who's my fifth? Hudson. I'd rather have Adam Wainwright. And honestly, I would even bring back Quintana potentially on a one-year deal to be the sixth starter guy or go to the bullpen. Or Carlos Rodon or one of those upper-level guys. It's funny that you think that all four of those starting pitchers are going to be healthy out of spring training and available to start the season. That's why I'm saying they should be adding a guy as well. I think it's Adam Wainwright. Don't forget about Libertor. (laughs) Yeah, well. Top 100 prospects by every service. Uh uh, it's, it, I, I'm with wrong. you guys. It's it's Wayno. More likely to miss the playoffs this year. The Padres or the Brewers? Padres currently one game up on the Brewers in the standings for that final wild card spot. I think that's what it's going to come down to. I, I think it's I think it's the Padres are going to miss. I, I think the Padres are mentally broken. Milwaukee found a way to overcome the Josh Hader thing. 
I mean, they, they, they won last night against the Dodgers. By the, the way, Dodgers. that deal came back to bite them yes. again last night with Denelson That's what I'm Lamette saying. giving it up that against the Cardinals. Uh, what I'm saying, but, like, the hater, the, the Denelson Lamette stuff, like, and then the Tatis Jr., I think San Diego is mentally broken, and I don't know if they can come back from that. Maybe they can, but just as we talk about Milwaukee's tough schedule, San Diego's got to deal with the NL West a lot the rest of the way. So I think Milwaukee gets in as that last one, and I think San Diego misses. I think Milwaukee misses. I I trust Bob Melvin to keep that from really becoming a power. Oh, you're out on exploding. Craig Council, huh? Yeah. Well, you no, hate no, the I'm smartest not out on Craig Council. I like Craig Council, but I think I, I just don't think Milwaukee's as good a team as San Diego. And I think I know they won last night against the Dodgers. They could have easily have lost that game. I think they're going to continue to kind of struggle down the stretch. I think San Diego writes the ship at some point, and they get into the playoffs. I'm not sure they go on a deep run. But I trust Bob Mellon to keep that team intact and get them through this moment. And then I think they just have a better roster than Milwaukee. So I'm going to say more likely Milwaukee misses the playoffs. Man, if you would have asked me this like a week ago, I think I would have given you the exact same answer. I think it's more likely San Diego misses the playoffs at this point. And maybe I'm just being totally reactionary, but I am. The way that they're playing right now is just not encouraging, man. They had... That one game after the trade deadline, they won 13 to five. And since then, it feels like everything has gone wrong for the Padres at every turn. I don't understand it, man. They lost, They got swept by the Dodgers. Uh, they end up losing their last two games against the Miami Marlins. They've I, I scored just, a total of three runs. And last night they were getting shut out through like seven innings again. It's it's rough I, right now. I think now. they just depleted. Like, I think they did the Vegas Golden Knights route. Like you depleted an entire but they didn't play- really trade anything from their major league roster. Well, they traded away Luke Voigt. They got rid and of Hop- Eric Hosmer. Yeah, but and you lose Fernando Tatis Jr. There's but no he wasn't Voigt a part was of it. Guy. I understand that. But what I'm saying is like you're depleting that locker room piece by piece. Guys are being shipped away for you one also player. Also got Juan Soto. Like, <laughs> has it helped? <laughs> it yeah, he's been really good for them. Well, he's on like a 17 game on base streak right now. It's it's pretty good. But he's walking, BK. His yeah. batting average is terrible. Good point. Chris Kerber joins us next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie, going out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to be joined by the voice of the blues. He's Chris Kerber here on a 101 ESPN Curves. We appreciate it, man. How you doing today? Brandon, doing awesome. How are you guys? Uh, doing very well. As of today, we are less than two months away from the start of the Blues season, Curbs. And earlier, we were talking about uh, a stat on Robert Thomas. And I don't know if you've seen this today. It was on Twitter. It breaks down the high danger shot assists uh, that from last year in the NHL. He, he broke the scale. Curbs. It's like Robert Thomas is all the way over to the right. And then the rest of the NHL is kind of clustered up into one group. I, I am curious. We've talked a lot about how the blues are going to be able to overcome the loss of David Perron offensively. Do you think that we may be overlooking the role that Robert Thomas could have in doing that to be able to make sure that whoever it is that's on his wings will have maybe not career years, but something approaching that. Yeah, you know, I don't know if overlooking is the right word, but I do think you're on track when you're thinking that still growth in the game from both him and Jordan Cairo um, are going to help fill that hole. I think what you're going to see 
where you're going to end up seeing the biggest impact, you know, filling the shoes of David Perron, in, in my opinion, is going to be twofold. It's going to be the offense on the power play, because I believe they'll find a way to fill the even strength offense, okay? So for me, it's the offense on the power play, and you you got to think Kairou, somebody else is going to get an opportunity in that role. But then the other way you got to you figure it is just just are you, are you going to play a 200 foot game? Are you going to play that hold on to the puck game? I, I really believe this, guys. I believe that I, I'm not sure that you could name me three guys now. Maybe analytics will show me different, but at least on the eye test and the games I've watched, I'm not sure you could name me three guys that when they're on their game could hold on to the puck in the offensive zone better than David Perron. Like he was like. You couldn't get the puck from him if, if, if you had to when he when he was in the offensive zone. So does Robert Thomas, you know, build that board play up where he becomes one of those guys that helps hold on to offensive zone time? That could definitely be a growth in the game that's worth to uh, worth keep watching. Yeah, they they have a, a dog rating on uh, HockeyViz dot com, and and David Perron is number one on those rankings. Yeah, that's called lying curbs lying from BK as he likes to do that with his analytics numbers. But you you mentioned Jordan Cairo. Yeah, but I, I like that lie. That one's a good one. You liked it or not. Don't pump him up there. Curbs, you mentioned Jordan Cairo and of course Robert Thomas. We had this question yesterday and, and we talked about it a little bit. Someone asked if if Thomas and Cairo can reach the level of Taves and Kane. And we said there's no way Kairou could reach the level of Patrick Kane. I mean, the guy is just an unbelievable player. But we did say that Robert Thomas could be like a Jonathan Taves. Do you agree with that? Well, I listen, why can't Jordan Kairou reach the level of Patrick Kane? Maybe he didn't do it quite as fast as Patrick Kane did. But in his basically, I mean, let's face it, last year was really his second full year in the league. And... It was the first full 82-game schedule that was still even a wacky schedule, right? And, and he, he played to a point of game and, and, and was still basically close to a point of game guy despite a, a not-so-good second half. Um, look, no, do you, I, do you, Patrick Kane has been a Hall of Famer almost since he stepped into the league. I understand that. But with his speed, with his ability to take the puck with speed, he's as close to a Patrick Kane-like player that I think we've seen on the Blues in, in quite a very long time. Uh, so he, like Robert Thomas, when I just talked about holding on to the puck, man, if, if those guys learn to protect the puck more in the offensive zone and find a way to extend zone time, what was already a very good offense, now minus David Perron, is still going to be a, a very good offense there. So, um, look, you're – you're comparing those two guys, unfortunately, to two sure-fired Hall of Famers that before unrestricted free agency helped their franchises to two cups. Maybe that third one was right at that same window there. So it's, it's maybe an unfair comparison, but from a point total standpoint and what we saw last year, all those, those point totals could be real interesting to see. I, I wouldn't cross that off the list yet. So this is interesting, Curbs. I, I, I was curious to look it up. In Patrick Kane's fourth season in the NHL, his age 22 season, it was age 23 last year for Cairo technically, but also his fourth year seeing time in the NHL. Kane had 73 games played. He finished with 27 goals. Cairo last year, 27 goals. Uh, Cairo, 74 games, by the way. Kane had 46 assists. Cairo last year had 48 assists. 
So 75 points on the total for Jordan Cairo, 73 for Patrick Kane. Kane was a plus seven that year. I know plus minus is not the end all be all, but plus seven nonetheless. And last year, Jordan Cairo was a plus 10 for the Blues. If we're going down this hypothetical scenario, do you think that Jordan Cairo has the potential to be a 40 goal scorer at some point in his career then? Well, okay, there, there's a, that's a fascinating question because that question, for example, and we know Tarasenko hit it once, but it comes up with Tarasenko a lot, right? But here's the, here's the one interesting part about a team that's extremely well-balanced. Do I think that Jordan Cairo has shown that he could have the ability to be a 40-goal scorer? In other words, can he find 13 more goals as he gets consistent in the game? Yeah, I think that's real possible. I, I think that's real possible. The question is, is when you are a deep enough team – and in a championship window or close to it like the Blues are in, do you get enough of that ice time? I mean, don't forget to go back and if we look, and, and I had have to look, but Patrick Kane was receiving top three minutes. Yeah, he was 19 minutes regular per game basis. at that point. Right, and, and Jordan Cairo was hitting these numbers at 15 minutes a game. Yeah. You know, 15 to 16, and then I think last year jumped up a little bit. Yeah, right at 16 so, and a half. Yeah, so, again, when you compare that, you're talking two and a half, three more minutes a game. How much of that is power play time? How much of that is, you know, end of the game time when you're, when, you know, when you're up a goal and you're defending by one and maybe you get some empty netters? Jordan Cairo isn't on the ice in that situation for the most part right now. So do I think he could get to 40 goals? Absolutely. The challenge when you've got a team that is as balanced as the Blues have been and you also have that passing skill that Jordan Cairo has, there are times that he may just look off a, a shot to pass the puck. So could he get there? Yeah, I, I think he without a doubt has the ability to get to 40 goals at, at some point in time. It just depends on kind of the makeup and the uh, the balance of this hockey team and, and, and how that happens. Curbs, uh, final one for me, and this is the number one question that we've been asked over the last couple of weeks, really since David Perron signed with Detroit, was what are the realistic expectations for Jake Neighbors? And I'm just kind of curious what your expectations are going into the season for him. Guys, my expectations is for Jake Neighbors is that you make the roster. You make the roster, and somewhere in that bottom six, you build the trust of your coach. If there's an opportunity uh, to play up the lineup because of an injury or a guy's tired or maybe just the flow of the game like we've seen happen with Sunquist, with Barbashev, with Kairou, with Thomas. I mean, guys, the, the blueprint for the young players in this organization with this general manager and this coaching staff is pretty clear how they've done it. I don't expect that to be any different with Jake Neighbors or a Bolduke or any other young player that, that that's coming in right now. I think you have enough. You have enough especially if you end up sliding sod into your top six. And, and, and even if you keep Shen at center, you know, which would be within a third line, you know, what, two second to third line type role. I, I think you've got enough to bring them along. And the one thing we saw this, and the reason we were talking about Jordan Cairo as positively as we were, is for two years Craig Berube played him in roles to be successful. He protected him. He talked about him. Then he put the pressure on him in the right way. They did the same thing with Thomas. I, I don't expect anything different with Jake Neighbors. Curbs, we appreciate the time as always, man. It's great to be able to catch up with you. Hopefully we'll talk with you again next week. And as we get closer and closer to the Blues starting training camp, uh, we'll be catching up with you again uh, as we get closer to that. 
You got it, guys. Have an awesome week. Talk to you in a bit. Take it easy. That's Chris Kerber here on 101 ESPN. I don't know what just happened. I had a glitch. Did you, like, did you malfunction there? I, or? I think I had you're a like, stroke. You like your computer. I, you yeah. shut down there for a segment? Yeah, I, I don't know what just happened. Uh, I apologize. It, man, it, it's we laughed at the idea yeah. of Jordan Cairo being anything approaching Patrick Kane. And I, I do think they're different players, and that's an important part of this. But... I mean, the speed is what made Kane so special, and Kairu's speed is the skill set that makes him unique. So it was the shot with Patrick Kane, too, and the part that I overlooked was as you went back and looked at the age 23 season, um, that was actually one of Kane's worst seasons, but what you did is the first four seasons. So looking at his 22 season, which is the 23 season comparable for for Kairu now, uh, that year he was an all-star and he had a 12.5 shooting percentage. Jordan Cairo last season had a 14.4 shooting percentage. If That is not an easy thing to maintain, but I guess I should also say that the year prior, when they had the shortened season, it was a 14.3. for his career now. If Cairo can stay and maintain this performance, then we can have the conversations about Patrick Kane, but you've got to stay consistent from start to finish, and I think that's going to be the biggest holdup for Cairo. But this tangles with Robert Thomas because Kane's success was tied into Jonathan Taves' success at the beginning of his career, and that's where Thomas and Kairou come into play. The other thing to keep in mind is, I mean, when you're looking at what Kane's goals, goal production was in his career, it's about... About 35 a season, somewhere around there? Yeah, but I'm looking at the power play goals. I mean, he's getting about 30% of his goals on the power play. In Robert or in uh, Jordan Kyrou's career, he has five power play goals, and they all came last year. He had 22 even strength uh, goals last year. The first time that you saw more than that from Kane was his age 27 season. Well, and Kyrou's going to get more power play time exactly because of no Perron. Kyrou's going to be on that number one unit. So yeah, I mean, maybe we did laugh at it too soon. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll hit the rewind next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Giving school supply drive and ticket blast this Saturday. I will be out at the Lufus Chrysler Jeep Dodge and Ram. It's located off of State Highway K in O'Fallon, Missouri. Come on out, drop off some school supply donations, and get registered for a chance to win the grand prize, which is a three-night stay at the Dreams Jade Resort and Spa in Cancun, courtesy of Travel House. And I'll be giving away a pair of tickets every 15 minutes for an upcoming Blues home game this Saturday. I will be out at Lufus, so come on out there. Get more details at 101ESPN.com. What was your favorite segment from today, Alex? Uh, that's a tough question. I love all of the segments on the show. Yeah, but there was one that stood out to you, right? What was your favorite segment that we talked about today? Uh, probably more likely to happen. Tanner, what was your favorite segment from today? Uh, definitely when we discussed the PKO. I, I personally didn't enjoy that one as much. I liked when we talked about how Robert Thomas is going to be a superstar this year that ends up helping the Blues rise above. Whatever your favorite segment is can be found on the oh, podcast page doing. after okay. the show today, 101ESPN.com or the free 101ESPN app. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers for Alex 
Ferrario, who may or may not be here tomorrow if he gets fired. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll all be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.